and Innistrad Preview and the Meaning of Modern on Episode 7 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to Episode 7 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, folks. In this episode, we're going to talk about Innistrad, what we know so far. It's themes, it's mechanics, the, some of the spoiled cards. We're also going to talk about modern and some of its future implications, especially on eternal magic. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, as always, you can reach out to us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. To start off this episode, though, we're going to have some announcements. We've got a few miscellaneous topics. The first that I wanted to bring up was how Chris Pecula won the latest grudge match. What is the grudge match? The grudge match is the regular competition out on the East Coast that features uh, New York, the, the Eastern Seaboard, basically, Boston, New York, uh, Washington, D.C. So, so That's not exactly right. The way it's structured is that each state... Three, uh, New England, New York, and Pennsylvania. New England is not a have, state, but they, but they, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. But what yeah. they do, they have a team, and the team who walks away with the most points gets the win. So everyone is invited. It's like an open tournament. It's a regional. It's a regional deal. Mm-hmm. But there are prizes at stake. They're keeping track of player of the year, which mm-hmm. you had mentioned when we had Paul on for the interview because he yeah. was leading that race. And so it's it's a semi structured ongoing competition. And the tournament, does it rotate sites? Is that right? Um, no, I'm not sure, actually. Okay. Well, anyway, the grudge match is a big deal. It draws a lot of players, right. the most players with regularity, within reason, out on the East Coast. Yes. And Chris Pecula played in that last one, which is great. Well, the tournament had 88 players, which so, is huge. A nice, huge tournament. It shows you, and again, it was the first major American tournament after Vintage Champs. Mm-hmm. And it shows you the excitement that people had at Vintage Champs, and they wanted to carry that home. You know, there's been a little bit of talk about the significance of the attendance at Vintage World. What do people say? Just how some people were saying that it was surprising. I, I saw a little chatter on Twitter, and other people were saying it's it's just a, a demonstration of the health of the format. I think it only shows good things. And the, know, the follow-up with the size of this event is a demonstration of that. You know, we just sort of dove into the podcast. We didn't mention the fact that this is our first podcast since Gen Con in almost a month. So <laughs> I know. it's great to be back. That's right, it is. We took a little bit of a break, and we've been soaking We're something recharged. up. We're recharged. That's right. We had, It was a, kind of a blowout weekend. It was awesome. Yeah, I was exhausted at the yeah. end of it. I didn't sleep before the tournament. My clothes were left at home. <laughs> I, in fact, today, for the first time, I wore the shirt to work that I bought at Walmart. <laughs> It was a nice shirt. I can't, but. I can't believe you kept that shirt. <laughs> I took everything else back. Okay. <laughs> but, anyway, uh, the grudge anyway, match. Yeah, it was, so it, it was a great a great follow-up. Uh, Chris Picula, uh, well-known, well-respected Hall of Fame candidate, yep. pro, uh, won the grudge match with our basically a derivative list of our Bob Gush list. He added, he calls it 4-3-2 because he cut a Bob and added two Jaces. Which we've already added, Jace. In fact, we talked about adding Jace immediately after the, the vintage, vintage championship. Right. Um, but anyway, he was fusing Bob and Gush, 
What's really cool about, well, first of all, he beat Dredge in the finals. <laughs> so the Bob Gush tag beat Dredge in the finals. Dredge and Bob Gush in the finals of a major turn- American tournament after Vintage Champs suggest something, I think. And secondly, Chris Pecula was tweeting that he had <laughs> three Pro Tour stamped gushes <laughs> that he was playing with, and he was looking for a fourth. Now, if you don't appreciate the significance of that, it's explain pretty, what that means. It's pretty cool. Well, for anyone who may not know, may not follow the Pro Tour that closely, whenever they play limited environments in the Pro Tours, they, it's something like Draft or Rochester or Sealed or whatever, they pre-vet all of the cards. So the pros aren't actually cracking packs. And part of that vetting process is to make sure all the packs have the proper number of cards. They swap out any foils for non-foil versions. They also stamp each card with a stamp that identifies that event. And so for him, a longtime pro, to have three gushes that were stamped from the Pro Tour <laughs> from Mask Block is just really awesome. Those he, are probably the rarest gushes on the planet. Could be. Could be. <laughs> it's incredible. So he'll soon have a play set of those. I'm incredibly jealous. <laughs> I mean, that only, not only, it tells you he was playing in the Pro Tour when Gush was released, which was like 99 or 98. Has, boy, has he seen pretty some time. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tight. So, so c- congrats to Chris Pecula and um, I cannot wait to play, uh, hopefully play him at the Waterbury. It would be awesome if he was out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got that for later on in our announcements, but we may as well, Just, yeah, we may as well jump to it. Yeah. So Steve and I are both very excited. Uh, us and a number of our teammates are going out to the Mandarin Open number 15, otherwise known as the Waterbury. It's, it's, it's the largest American, North American vintage tournament, right. period. I mean, year in and year out. Uh, it n- now, uh, I guess there's a caveat. The Venice Championship has at times been larger, but generally it's not. The last Waterbury was how big? 120 some. I so it's, exactly. it's pretty close to the same size as Venice yeah. Champs. I guess Venice World last year was 127 or something like that. 128, maybe it's 129. A, it says something though that this this particular event happens regularly. I think this event is going to be big. Yeah. I would be shocked if there's less than 140. The format's so, riding a high. East yeah. Coast especially is a I mean, if the a grudge nucleus. match gets 88 players, yeah. the Waterbury could get like 170, 180, 190. So let's be clear. Or be careful not to miss any details. It's on October 8th out in Stratford, Connecticut. It's called the Waterbury because right. it, it took place in Waterbury. Is it in a store or is it a hotel? Uh, it honestly, a... I don't have the detail in front of me. Okay. But the detail's all on the Manadrain. So for anyone who's interested and available on the weekend it's of October 8th. It's called the Manadrain Open 15. Yeah. And what's the date? October 8th. Be in Stratford, Connecticut. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. There's going to yeah. be a ton of great players there. We're hoping Pecula will make it, and we're going to be there, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, well, if there's going to be a shift in the metagame, it'll happen there, likely. And you can expect to see all the, the same people, uh, Sean Anthony, Nick Detweiler, all, all, you know, the, Paul Mastriano will yeah. be there. Um, what will be interesting is uh, what we're brewing up is pretty sick. Yeah. The question is whether we're going to play at the Waterbury or... Uh, <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, but but go ahead. Good times will be had by all. Yes. Oh, and the Waterbury is also... The Waterbury is a huge community event, so it's not just another tournament. Ray Robillard, who is the TO, puts together a really good time. He has all these uh, ancillary sides, like he has categories. Was the trivia contest? Yeah, he always has side events that aren't just magic, but related to magic. His rem- games are fun. I remember last year, I was like in the front row. You know, <laughs> he had like categories or whatever. I mean, he put art 
Im- magic art on the screen, project on the screen and say, like, you know, what card is this? And you have, like, you know, 30 seconds to put an answer in the box. Yeah. Or you'd have, like, uh, the name of a major magic card scrambled. Mm-hmm. You'd have to figure out what the card is. Or and then, flavor text. Or flavor text, and you have yeah. to guess the card and... You know, um, or like guess three three cards from Revise that were you know had some you know restriction or yeah. Or it's fun trivia, and he yeah. does team events and some stuff like that. And he oh, gives yeah. away prizes, and and we'll probably field you know some teams and stuff like that. So yeah, it, a good time will be had by all. It really is a good community out there. It'll be a blast. Moving on, then Steve, you wanted to address oh, your. Oh, you know, actually, there is a major tournament announcement in Europe that I, I mean, oh. the Eternal Weekend 2011, which is one of the largest um, Magic tournaments every year. Um, and I don't have all the details, but you can look it up. I think it's in Spain. It's they do you know like Legacy one day. It's basically it's like the, the Bazaar of Moxen. It's like the Bazaar of Moxen. Yep. Um, so look for that for sure. Do you know what the prizes are like? Are they? No? Oh, they're ridiculous. <laughs> Those uh, European TOs put out some good prizes. I have it right here. Um, they, it's going to be October first and second, actually. Oh, oh it's wow! September third, October first and second. So that actually might be indicative of something soon. Wait, I mean, rather, say, it'll, be, it'll be before the Waterbury, so it'll be indic. Yeah. Wow. Um, Did you say September 3rd? September 30th, October 1st, and oh, 2nd. Oh, I understand. And the Legacy format, the first 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 place is 40 dual lands. Oh, man. It says plus trofeo, plus tapate commemorativo, which I think means trophy and commemorative plaque, maybe. Awesome. Tw- second place is 20 dual lands. Third is, and fourth are 10 dual lands. And so on. And that's not a slight thing anymore. Oh, man. Vintage. <laughs> the location is Madrid. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday, October 2nd. First place is five moxes. Nice. Moxes. Moxes. Okay. Uh-huh. Plus trofeo. Plus, <laughs> plus, plus tapate comentoritivo. <laughs> second place. Second place is Black Lotus. Oh, Nice. Nice. That's that's a real tearjerker <laughs> for the second place for the finalists. Third place is Incessful Recall. Fourth is Time Walk. Ask Paul Fifth what he got for second place. <laughs> Fifth place is Mox D Unlimited. Wow. Okay. Sixth place is Mox D Unlimited. Seventh and eighth place are also Mox D Unlimited. And then wow. nine through twelve is Mana Drain. And then 13 through 16 is Manadrain Italian. Dang, good stuff. And then the first place budget deck gets a time twister. So I'll start you off on your power. (laughs) It is is not quite to the level of the Bazaar of Moxon, but it is still nothing to be... Uh, nothing to be sneezed at. That is a that's a fun event. Right. Any of our listeners who are actually going to attend that event, please send us a note. Let us know that you're going, and send us a note when you are finished, how you did, and how it was. We'd love to hear from you. We've actually forgotten something very important. What's that? So, first of all, when does Innistrad become legal? Well, Innistrad becomes when's legal at the end of this month. The so, pre-release is the 20, uh, 20-something, 23rd. I don't have it in front of me. I'll look it up. But there's another important thing. We have an abandoned restricted list announcement, September 20th. Oh, wow. No yes. kidding. Yes. All this Gen Con so business. For for that tournament, October 1st, the, the ban and restricted list announcement will take effect October 1st. So it'll be the changes will be – I doubt that people who are preparing for this, this eternal weekend will have much time to prepare because the, – well, they'll have a week and a half. But wow. anyway, last year at this time, Gush and Frantic Search were unrestricted. 
So I would be surprised if it was quite that bombastic, but still, <laughs> that's a pretty good precedent. Yes. Holy moly! That's so a- there could be two major changes to the vintage format. We could have Innistrad making a huge splash. Oh wow! And changes to the banned and restricted list. Wow. Anybody who was perhaps on the fence about Waterbury now, you should definitely go. Yeah. That's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. It'll be the, it'll be a decisive shift in whatever yeah. is going to happen, and we can't wait to, to see it. Um, Innistrad comes out on the twenty and the thirtieth. I, I mean, mean in the pre-release on the twenty-third. There won't even be many major vintage tournaments afterwards. I mean, this year. So this will be like the last big event. This isn't to say that things won't shift and change. They will. Right. But it'll happen on a much smaller scale and the changes will be less salient mm-hmm. until so they're aggregated yeah so anything else on the tournament announcements anything mm-hmm. else we wanted to plug your article on bobby fisher <laughs> <laughs> talk to people talk to people about so what that means. i wrote i read this book by frank brady that was great it was a biography of brady fisher bobby bobby fisher and uh I wrote this article for Eternal Central that's got a lot of press. Check it out. People, what did you think of it, Kevin? Be honest. I thought it was awesome. I mean, it was partially awesome because I'm very intrigued by Bobby Fischer as a character. But you drew some awesome parallels to magic. And the one I loved the most was about preparation. Hmm. A lot of people think Bobby Fischer, maybe they know him ancillarily, Mm -hmm. uh, his Wikipedia page or something like that. They know his accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And you would think he was a savant. Well, he was a savant. But your point about his preparation being greater than everyone else's at a given event is incredible. It really speaks to how to become a good Magic player. Right. You don't have to be the most skilled player to really take down an event. So what's Kevin, what Kevin's talking about is my article is called Three Lessons from Bobby Fischer for Magic Players. And, and one of the lessons is that tournaments are mostly decided before the tournament's begun. And I talk about golf, but primarily chess. And the point is that really your, your tournament play is a function of all the preparation and work you put in ahead of time. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, like, uh, you know, most people know this in the context of golf. They say, you know, that a golfer just can't, you know, go on break and then show up in a tournament and do well. Like, those skills, you have to be, like, Phil Mickelson is hitting hitting the, the greens. Like, he'll after the first day of, of a major, he goes back into the greens and, and does putting and does mm-hmm. a driving, you know, and is constantly practicing and, and, you know, that's a lot of criticism of Tiger Woods is that he doesn't – he hasn't been doing the little tournaments that he needs to do to get prepared for the big ones, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I, I show – I talk about the exact things that Bobby Fischer would do before a tournament that are really astounding. I think you'll find astounding. Like one I of them just anecdotally, before he was playing for the world championship, he read – he had a book of Boris Baskey, who was his, his opponent the, in the reigning world champion, his games – and he would ask passersby to basically flip to a page of one of these 500 games, and he would then recite the game play by play to show you that he really mastered not the game of chess, which he did, but Boris Spassky, so that he knew what Boris Spassky's moves would be, what his openings were, how he thought about board positions, how he, what his principles of play were. You know, so really got in the head of his opponent. And then, of course, he, he crushed Boris Spassky. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a good article. Very fun read. Especially if anyone has an interest in chess and or Bobby Fischer right. and the ties between the two. I want to draw a parallel here that just sprung into my mind because I read well, a cool article on ESPN just yesterday about technology, information technology in baseball. Hmm. And about how, yeah, and about how the clubhouse in baseball has become filled with iPads. Yes. And about how managers and players <laughs> now all are sitting I with love- their iPads and <laughs> pitch counts and, right. and spray from hitters. Right. 
So it's such a it's such a direct parallel from Bobby Fischer to that notion of baseball yes. to magic about how preparation. You know, it's amazing you say this because the, I, Kevin and I on uh, this weekend are going to Sandusky to play in a tournament, and I went to the last. It's the Team Series Open. It's a great event. Unfortunately, this podcast will probably be lo- live after the tournament right. is over. But the last time I went, I had the uh, uh, chance to play against Jason Pere, who works for the Cleveland Indians, and he plays. Magic and he's a, a, a he loves vintage. Well, fascinating. And he's a sabermetrician for them. <laughs> I mean, he, functionally he is. And we were talking about this last time I was up there. Uh, he's actually been in the Mean Deck Open before. Um, and you know, so the movie Moneyball is coming out soon with Brad Pitt, and that's all about this about how Billy Bean, who worked for the uh, still works for the um, Oakland Athletics, discovered statistical really indicators that other people ignored. So in baseball, the approach has always been you hire the grizzled old veteran who knows the game, and they scout, they go out, and they look at the the players, and they sort of eyeball it. Mm -hmm. And Billy Bean was like, you know, we don't have the money the Yankees have. We don't have the extensive scouting system. We can do is we need to find metrics that will give us an edge. And so baseball became – so Billy Bean identified those metrics, and he came up with all these new statistical uh, indicators that – are now standard practice, like I don't, I, I like on base percentage or things like that, you know. Yeah. Now, so it gave the Oakland Athletics a huge edge, and they were constantly in the playoffs. Now everyone's adopted them, and they're sabermetricians and Ivy League, basically mathematicians and statistical analysts mm-hmm. like Jason Pere throughout the all these organizations. Now, some people say it's gone too far; that they rely they rely too much on these sabermetrics as opposed to, you know, the the non tangible, you know, uh, intangible. Um, what do you call them? Uh, you know the factors yeah. that that you sort of the thing you have to actually but, swing the bat and hit the ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the point the point the point is that it's funny that you say that because those people play magic. So Jason Pere works for the Cleveland Indians and also loves vintage. Right. So <laughs> Not, well, and it's, it, there's no surprise that it would attract that kind of personality. Yes. Because magic rewards that kind of preparation. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the degree that baseball has adopted it, but baseball has several. Hundreds of years of head start, on <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating because you, you said Bobby Fischer could recite his opponent's games yes. from the past by by memory. There are plenty of baseball players who can recite their upcoming opponent in terms mm-hmm. of pitching matchups, yeah. their performances, and their yes. tendencies. That's what by they memory. do. They they coach players on. So here's what this pitcher is going to bring. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the math on. You know, if he does this, you'll have a percentage. Right. You know, and they 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 do that all the time. And, and so, there are, and there are plenty of pro magic players who can recite things like that about other pros. Right. About this this player tends to do this. This player taps right. like this. This player bluffs in this situation. Right. There are plenty of anecdotes like that. Magic doesn't have quite the... It is um, metagaming. It's metagaming. It's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've even mentioned on this podcast a, a handful of noteworthy vintage players and how yes. they have tendencies. That's right. You and, know when you're going to a tournament, you have to play Rich Shea. He's going to play a certain kind of deck, and yep. you've got to be prepared for it, and here are the cards you want to go in with. And, and your interview with Paul after your match in the, the yes. semifinals was filled with that kind of detail right. about, I know you're this kind of player. That's well, right. I, I, I mean, love that kind of stuff. Chess has all these... You know, like, what 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 are people's proclivities when it comes to openings? What are people's proclivities when it comes to trades? Right. You know, what how do they value certain pieces? Like, if you know a person's mind, mm-hmm. 
you can make advantageous trades and get small advantages that accumulate over time. And just like, you know, when I was saying I played against Paul, I knew he was likely to play a certain way, right. and I was going to make decisions. He also knew the same for me. Right. So, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same principle. Yeah. You know, that, that all these things come into play, and you need to be aware of the psychological factors, not just the, you know, the uh, strikes and balls. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, pitching, I mean, when you, when you think about pitching, pitching is a heavily psychological thing. You've got a pitcher, and that's why you've got, like, young, phenomenal pitchers who – They've got great stuff, but they don't—they aren't Roy Halladay. Yeah. It takes years for pitchers to become psychological masters, like the Cliff Lees, the Roy Halladays. They're all in their 30s, and they're in their 30s because they all have the great stuff, but what they've mastered is the psychological game, the control, the command, knowing the batters. You, when you go up there, it's a—it's like a high noon standoff. You know, the batter really wants to hit your ball, and you've got to pitch a ball in a small little area. How do you? Get in that guy's head. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a 33 pitcher, year old pitcher, and you're bat- pitching to a 19 year old kid, mm-hmm. you can psychologically overpower him. But mm-hmm. if you're 22 year old, you know, got a flamethrower, you know, and you're pitching, you're batting against Derek Jeter, doesn't matter how good you are, he's going to hit you. Right, right. <laughs> and in Magic, there are lots of different ways to spin that analogy. But the first one I thought of was simply rogue decks. Yes. Those tw- those eighteen year old yes. pitchers are like rogue decks in a metagame. <laughs> they might surprise a guy because they're powerful and un- unexpected. They're kind of an unknown quantity. But if you play that rogue deck in a tournament or in a metagame for long enough, mm-hmm. you it needs to de- adapt and develop and become sophisticated. Another way of playing with that that analogy is like a super powerful deck that's kind of linear. Right. You know, it's kind of like like Steven Strasburg has a ninety nine, you know, ninety nine. He's the f- the young phenom for the uh, Nationals who who blew his arm out last year, and, mm-hmm. and he was like the the most heralded pitcher, number one draft in the draft in 25 years, mm-hmm. the most heralded in 25 years. His arm, he threw the ball so fast. Like, the, he, his, he consistently threw 100, 99, 98, 100 miles an hour and up. Yep. And, they, and I think they even recorded like 103 miles an hour throw at one point. The, he literally, within less than one year, blew his arm out. And he, he took a year to rehab, Tommy John surgery, He's coming back, but he can't rely on that pitch only. Mm-hmm. So he has these other things he's, he's developing. You're literally metagaming, and you're developing and becoming better. Anyway, there's so many parallels between chess and magic. I mean, the rating <laughs> system, you know, one of the things that, that Malcolm Gladwell, if you haven't read, read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, it's phenomenal. In fact, it's a great book to read with Frank Brady's Endgame, because <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, is just amazing. And one of the things that he says in there, I think we might have talked about this before, it's a 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. To master anything, you have to do it for 10,000 hours. And he said that uh, to become a, gra- a grandmaster in chess, you have to spend not 10 years at the game. The exception was Bobby Fischer, who did it in nine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, 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 the, and the point is, of course, that, you know... Um, that, that in magic it does take years to master the game. I mean, you can you can become I don't know from just learning the game to a pro tour player in probably like two years, two or three years. But I mean, it takes that it takes well over a year. And you have to I commit mean, to yourself. Yeah. And most players who be who are pro level players or the top pro level players basically play casually for a bit for years, and then decide they were going to make the leap to competitive. I think Luis Scott Vargas is a good example of that. Yep. He'd been playing the game since 1993. Yep. And he was mostly a casual player until, what, like five, six years ago? Mm-hmm. He started competing for the Pro Tour. There are a number of pros that followed that same tra- trajectory, you're right. So, anything else on that one? Check out the article. It's eternal-central.com. And I think it's the second article right there. It's uh, Three Lessons from Bobby Fischer. It's a short article. People have said it's really... Someone used the term 
gripping or something like that? It's, it's a nice, it's a page turner. It's a good yeah. one. Okay. <laughs> Another article that we want to touch on is our friend and teammate, Brian DeMars. He just posted, I think, in the last 48 hours, an article, the top 100 cards in vintage, which is a bit of a statistical slash so look for the survey la- approach. Look for the at last, last 48 hours won't mean a lot to our listeners. <laughs> so, so, that's right. so it'll be from, what, Tuesday of this week that's on right. Star City Games. So look on Star City Games for Brian DeMar's last article. Probably. But go ahead, describe the, what it is. The top 100 cards in vintage. He surveyed 10 players. Ten players who are... Including both of us. Including the two of us and himself, so seven other people, <laughs> including um, uh, Patrick Chapin and and Rich Shea and some folks Nick that... Nick Detweiler. Nick Detweiler, some folks that have played the format for a long time. Anyway, the question was, how would you rate this card, times more than 100 cards, on a scale of 1 to 10 in the current vintage environment? And it was an well, intention. No, the question was, how good is this card? In how vintage? good is this card in vintage? And the, it, 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 he clarified later that it was in the, in the current environment. <laughs> okay. But so you say? Well, <laughs> he did to me. But that's part of the point, though, is that the part of the methodology he took here was to be intentionally open-ended. Mm-hmm. He was taking a bit of an open-ended slash statistical approach, meaning he he aggregated these results of all these people times more than a hundred cards, and then took average scores cleaved off some outliers and gave the results. And it was a very interesting exercise to participate in. He didn't get into a whole bunch of detail about what everyone said. That would have been an enormous article. He did provide the results of his statistical outcome. So the, the every card received a point score that would have been at minimum 10 to 100, right? Right, exactly. Because if all everyone gave a card a point value of 1, it would have gotten 10. Exactly. And the only two cards to get 100 points were Black Lotus and Ancestral Recall. So yes. they share the top spot on the list. Yes. And they, the top 10 and top 20 cards are filled with the sort of things you would expect. Obviously, the Moxon and Time Walk and Yogwill are all up there. Well, the, the article is notable for a couple of reasons. I, I don't think that... Let me say what's notable for, and then let's talk <laughs> about the criticisms of it. And sure. then let's discuss sort of where we think some of the cards should have been ranked. Okay. <laughs> so it's notable because, first and foremost... Um, it's a visual way to look at vintage. It's a nice way to look at vintage. And when you look at the list, which Star City Games has done a good job of just having a picture of every one of the cards, 100 mm-hmm. to 1, you see really how how modern vintage is in a sense, meaning that how effectively the format incorporates new printings. I mean, I would say that most of the list is printings in the last seven or eight years. Oh, yeah. It's a very visceral experience. It is. It's a that's that's the word I was looking for. It's a visceral experience that leaves the impression vintage is a very contemporary format that utilizes cards from the last two years as much as it does from its first two years. Mm-hmm. And so it's a great list of just to peruse for that that purpose. Um, so that's what I think is notable about it. Now, what's problematic about it? Oh, what's also notable about it is <laughs> that there seems to be some really clear cutoffs. So. Like, there are really clear demarcations between, like, the top ten cards, you know? And then, the, you know, there's, so, so there's, like, drops. You know, yeah. there are... Um, it's not is, a smooth analog <laughs> curve down from, from, one, from 1 to 100. Right. Um, so that's, that, those are what I think are notable. What's maybe you could criticize about it, well, Kevin, what do you think is maybe potentially problematic about the well, question? Well, the most common critical response has been basically the lack of discussion or explanation in Brian's presentation, I would say. 
that he unfortunately well, the article could that's spawn. remediable. I mean, he could have it said is. the he article could have said he could have made remarks about the, how the things were ranked, like his observations about how people viewed cards. He could have done as much or as little of that as he wanted, right. basically, and he chose to do relatively little of that. He could have written a book with this topic, right. basically. So, so there's that criticism, but there's another sure. criticism, which is the, which is the sort of semantic question. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, so, as Steve already has has pointed out, as I was even trying to phrase the question, is that the methodology here: how good is this card in vintage? <laughs> how good is it right now? How good has it ever been? How powerful is it? How synergistic is it? All these ways of framing this question produce dramatically different opinions of various cards. And so it was very much up to personal interpretation. Yeah, if you put the... It's a very subjective question. If you put the... If you frame the question in terms of how good is this card currently, you get a very different answer than how good is this card, period. Right. For example, Flash. (laughs) You know, like historically garbage, post errata, insane. Best card in the format. Best card. Yeah, I mean, like... And now, restricted, not very good. So, do you have to put it in the context? What is right. the context? Brian could have gone down the... There's, there's, I think there's three possibilities. One, what he did, which is leave it ambiguous and highly subjective. Right. The second is provide some detail. And third is try and be rigorous about it. As a survey trying to answer the question of literally what are the best cards in vintage, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't do that. I mean, there's no analytical rigor there's no definition of what is meant by good Mm -hmm. there is no there are no criteria provided Mm -hmm. and there's no way of ranking you'd have to rank those criteria as well so i mean and 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 i i understand why he didn't want to go down that road that's basically a social scientist job he was providing survey fodder for conversation it's not social science (laughs) (laughs) right it is a pretty good conversation starter but yeah. he did not really undertake any of that conversation in the article. Right. But it, if you want to have something to talk about with your friends, yeah. <laughs> and you've got four or five hours to kill, <laughs> as Steve and I are want to do sometimes, go right ahead. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but but I... Uh, uh, by the way, if yeah. you're doing a car ride to the Waterbury, yeah. <laughs> bring a copy of this well, article. <laughs> <laughs> and what you might want to do is ask yourself, you know, how would you rank these cards one to ten? You know, and... And that's just all he did for us is how do you, you know, what do you say? Number one to mm-hmm. ten. My approach to the question was, and I want to hear what your approach was. I'll sure. My approach. My approach was I will reserve the ten ranking for the absolute best best cards. So I think there were like 11 or 12 cards that got the ten ranking. I said Black Lotus, Ancestral Recall, Tinker, Yawgmoth's Will. Um, I think I included Force of Will. Um, I think I had like ten cards in that. I did not. Oh, included Mox Sapphire and Mox Jet, which I gave tens. Mm-hmm. I gave Ruby, Pearl, and Emerald nines. Um, interesting. Yeah, and I gave. Uh, I think yeah, I think there were ten. So, anyways, you get the sense. I said the absolute most. Oh, Time Walk and time DT. Walk, right. Time Walk and DT, and and it's very interesting. Every time I think about Time Walk, I think about it differently now. <laughs> Notice Time Walk got third place. Yeah. Most, I, I, that doesn't surprise me, honestly. And, and Kevin and I both think about Time Walk differently because of the unrestricted list. That's right. That conversation <laughs> it, really reframed a Time Walk for me. Permanently. Yeah. I just... I just <laughs> so what was your approach to this? My approach was definitely less generous than yours. I gave only... Oh, 
Oh boy, I don't want to. I'm sorry, I'm misremembering. I only gave one or two cards tens. Wow. I only gave, I think, Lotus and Ancestral tens. Wow. And my so list. So you're responsible for this. <laughs> my list. No, I was not alone. My list dropped precipitously. I gave Mox well, Pearl a, an eight. Or a seven, even, well, I, I think. Well, Sean Anthony gave it a two or something. Well, that's, so, yeah, yeah, that's an outlier. Yogmas Will had 97 points, which means three people... Didn't give it a ten. <laughs> didn't give it a ten. And Time Walk... Ha- I'm sorry, t- t- Time Walk had 97 points. Yogmas Will had 96. So you're to blame for... Now, it, I've long said that I thought Yogmas Will is... Again, there's a number of ways to look at this. There's a difference <laughs> between power, synergy, and I define power often as synergy... You know, this is often splitting hairs. Like, and what's I, the difference between deck archetype or what's the other thing? Uh, deck archetype and, oh, I forgot what the third one was. Anyway, that's the, yeah. that's the thing is that you're splitting hairs here. What's the difference between power, synergy, good, important? You know, like these how, things all... How proximate a card is to winning the game. This also, I think, illustrates a... Right. I think this illustrates something which is important, which is that synonyms aren't actually synonyms. <laughs> because, I mean, the word synonym means same same meaning. But the thing is, in the English language, every word has denotation and then has connotations. And those connotations differ, and the denotations may slightly differ. Even though, like, good and important in this context may appear to be synonyms, they have slightly different connotations. And people interpret it. These are are subjective things. My opinion has long been that Yagmas Will, at least prior to the Time Vault entering the format and changing things strategically, has been the most powerful card in the format. It defines all of their strategies. Con- contradistinction, or put into contrast, Black Lotus. Right. right. Black Lotus is arguably the most synergistic card in Magic because it inter- interacts favorably with every other card in the format. There are only a few cards I think of can think of that doesn't actually do anything with. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, like Bridge from Below. Like going Black Lotus, Bridge <laughs> from Below is not a synergistic interaction. So if your perspective is synergies, and I think that's a, a very valid perspective, Black Lotus is great. But Black Lotus is not a strategic card. You don't build towards Black Lotus. Right. It doesn't define a strategy, a game, a, a, a game objective. Right. Whereas Yogmas Will does. It just happens to be best at doing what it does. Right. Black it's Lotus. the most synergistic card in right. the format. The, the, another way of looking at best, or the question of best, is Tinker. Tinker is strategic like Black Lotus. Sorry, like Yogmas Will. But it's also tactical. Mm-hmm. It's tactical in the sense that, like, like Black Lotus, because it's something you can deploy early and it puts your opponent, you know, it's sort of it's like a running back in football. You know, <laughs> Yogmas Will is the touchdown thrown by the quarterback. Mm-hmm. Tinker is the running back. You know, it's something you do to get yardage to, you know, to gain advantage, a big maybe a big advantage, right. you know. And oftentimes the the blockers in the back, you know, there's a route open seam and mm-hmm. the running back takes it for the touchdown and then you win with bicycle losses. <laughs> but 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 you know, you don't build towards it. You don't accumulate towards Yogmas Will like you do like so, Tinker, like you do towards Will, sure. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. So the point is that there are a lot of ways to look at these things. Black Lotus, Yogmas Will, or Tinker could all have be, be defined as the best card in Vintage, depending on what your question is. If you say, what's the most synergistic? I think it goes to, you know, um, to Black Lotus. You say, what's the most important strategically? You could say Time Vault or Yogmas Will. You say, what's the most powerful tactic? You could say Force of Will or Tinker. Mm-hmm. You know, or if your question is, what's the least unrestrictable card in the format? <laughs> then you get a different answer altogether. You might get Time Walk. You might get Time Walk. So, yeah. you know, the question frames and defines the, the range of possible answers. Well, and clearly Brian's goal was not to come up with a highly rigorous situation <laughs> that entailed a bunch of rules. And so he got a little bit of diversity in his results and... 
you can see that, well, he, he didn't lay it all out for the reader, but you can see that in our diversity of responses here. I mean, I gave Mox Pearl a seven, I think, <laughs> on the scale. And I just think, I think it's fascinating that you gave Pearl and Ruby the same score. Well, you know what? I may have I, given Pearl an eight, but I definitely put okay. Ruby and Emerald as a nine. Granted. Yeah. But it, it, Brian's methodology, I thought, I was very interesting, too, because he did not ask in a sequence that he thought was going to go from top right. to bottom. He didn't say, all right, what do you give Lotus? What right. do you give Will? Right. He he mixed it up, and he asked things like Pyroblast and Red Elemental Blast at different points in the survey. Yeah, and then he combined them. And he combined it. So it, it, it caused me to think that's what a fun exercise. And I think anyone can undertake this action for right. themselves. And did you, do you have anchor points? Like, did you think as you were, did you, yes. you were constantly, that's what I was doing. I was developing anchor points. Absolutely. And I was thinking, well, that, see, that's a very fascinating point right there because one of my early questions to Brian right when we got started was, wait a second, is the worst card in vintage a one? Or is the hundredth card in vintage a seven? Because it's obviously better than so many other cards, which yeah. is a very simple question. Are you ranking it out of all magic cards right. or just out of the playables in vintage? You know, I, so I took a pretty broad approach. I don't think I gave but, anything a one. I gave one or two cards a one. I've, I've long sort of opposed attempts to categorize the restricted list <laughs> in terms of like fast man acceleration, right. tutoring, blah, blah, because it's so contextual. Right. Like what is gifts and given? Is it a tutor? Or is it card advantage? Right. What is Merchant Scroll? Right. Is it card advantage or is it a tutor? What you is know, Flash? What is, what is Flash? Yeah, exactly. And people are like, well, they tr these anomalies pop up and they tr they create these elaborate doctrines to sort of sweep them in. You right. know, and it's like, it's just not worth the risk because everything is so contextual. Everything has a context and those contexts matter. Right. Great example. Thirst for Knowledge and Flash. Thirst for Knowledge, first of all, Flash didn't even make the list. <laughs> not anymore. Thirst yeah. for Knowledge was one of the most dominant cards our format's ever seen in terms mm -hmm. of tournament performance. And yet, where did it where did it rank? Not very high at all, probably. Yeah, because today, in, in the moment, it is just not that dominant. It's not that strong. It's only featured in a handful of lists. Because it's restricted. Right. When looking at the list, Kevin, what do you think is, is wrong? Like, what do you think is, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really wrong? Not just sort of like, uh, you know, what, what struck you as that can't be right? Well... Boy, that's an interesting question. Nothing struck me as is stand out wrong. Oh gosh, I don't know. Maybe channel was ranked a little too highly or something. I, it, Fast it, bond was really high. Where was Fast bond? The top twenty-five. It was in the top fifteen. That really surprised me. I, see, that's a very interesting. That's a good example of how contextually how does Fast bond score compared to Gush? And I thought right, exactly. there's a very interesting uh, duality there yeah. where one Blight would not Colossus. be nearly so good without the other. Blight and Blightsteel Colossus, right. That ranked a lot higher on a lot of people's lists compared to how I ranked it. Blightsteel Colossus was the highest ranked creature. Right. It was, I think, the 25th card. Right. Which is, what? <laughs> I know, it's crazy. So there was nothing that stood out to me as terribly wrong, given the sense that I had already... I was, I was one of the last people to answer the questions. I'd already internalized the notion that... There was just so much diversity in how you interpret that that, mm -hmm. that nothing really bothered me. <laughs> and, and I also know that a couple of people answered questions with what I would call something of an agenda, meaning saying this card is better than people think, and so they're giving it a score higher than right. what would be demonstrated well, by its current performance, things like that. Another example of the cards that we were talking about, Lion's Eye Diamond, like Brian didn't even have on his list, and I pointed out. Right. I gave it a, I think, an 8. <laughs> but that's because of its historical value, you know. Right. Like right I mean, now, it's seeing almost no play aside from no in Dredge. It's in Dredge, but it's in the Vintage Championship World. I think it's in the World <laughs> Championship list. So. I know. I tossed that out there. Aside from the Vintage Championship <laughs> winning list, it's not in anything else. <laughs> <laughs> 
But but I think there were a couple things. Merchant Scroll seemed far too low yeah. in my perspective. I think it was what? Merchant Scroll was like... I don't recall. Right. But it didn't even make the top 20. In my view, Merchant Scroll is on par with Vamp Tutor. Mm-hmm. And so to have Merchant Scroll at... Fastbond was, by the way, 20 sec, 23rd or 22nd. Lower than I remembered, but still... And like still, Yen- Colossus was above Underground C. <laughs> That's awesome. We we could go through this whole list and talk about every ranking, right? But I think we should leave it to our listeners oh, to go take a look. Right, Merchant Scroll was was forty fourth. That's below pretty Norod. low. And to me, that card is a top twenty card. That's pretty. I low. mean, remember our unrestricted discussion? I had it really high. Yeah. But there were a couple other things. But yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Take a look at it. Um, it is definitely the spiders. Twenty fourth. Definitely good fodder for discussion. Yeah. So, Kevin, tell me about Innistrad. Tell you about t- tell you about the next block, just the whole thing, <laughs> just the simple. Tell as that. me everything, everything there is to know. So I'm not one of those people who refreshes Wizards of the Coast daily MTG. Right. Like I, I look at it when someone links me to an article, mm-hmm. um, and I also typically don't look at set information until the entire set is out, mm-hmm. because it's very annoying to go to MTG Salvation and read 15 or 20 or 50 cards, and then when the set's out, I have to read them all over again and for my set review. So <laughs> That's and find the ones that I haven't seen. All so, right, well, I'm here to answer your questions. Awesome. Let so me t- answer the first one, Tell which me about at, the, it. at the topmost level, Innistrad is the next block, obviously, the first set of the next block. Is and, it a three-set block? Or a oh, yeah. It's gonna Thank be God they've gone semi- back to Semi-traditional three-set block. And How many the cards most, are in the set? 264. That's less, right? They used to be like 350 for first sets. It's according to their current model. They okay. reduced it a while right. back. Yeah. And they've increased the second and third sets, right? The most noteworthy part of a feature of Innistrad is its top-down design. And this what do you is, mean by that? Like M10 top-down? Yes, like M10's kind of top-down approach, but to a, to a greater degree, because M10 didn't have a particular theme, a setting that was common amongst all the cards, and Innistrad right. does. What was, what was what, first of all, define what you mean by top-down. Top-down means starting with a concept, the setting, the creatures, the story, the characters, the themes of the world, and having that informed design. See, that does, that's not how I understood M10 as top-down design. I thought M10 was, was like, we want to do, we want to create a feeling of, like, simple, oh, I thought that it was like they had these principles in mind. Like, we want simple cards, we yes. want... You it's know. an alternate definition of top-down. Okay. And they also had, it was serving a different point. There was not a setting, but it wanted to evoke the early game. It wanted to evoke alpha, for right, example. Exactly. And some other, but a lot of that is a mechanical definition in game terms. Mm-hmm. This is a top-down from a flavor standpoint. Okay. So the setting is gothic horror, and they started the design of this set, unlike talking about mechanics or card types, they started the design of this set by saying, what is horror to you? And the design team sat down and they made a list. They said ghosts and werewolves ghosts and vampires. And goblins. And, exactly, and things that go bump in the night. And they are there made... going to be goblins in this set? There actually are not. What? <laughs> no, not in this particular set. <laughs> they, they, they're taking a break from goblins and from elves. There are not elves in this set. Not even dark elves? Apparently not. Well, I, you know, we, we both find um, the dark to be one of our favorite sets. Oh, yeah. In terms of theme... In terms of the art, for mm-hmm. sure, mm-hmm. we both know how important. We both acknowledge 
how important art is to a set. Mm -hmm. That is, and, and this comes out of the early testing of the game, that once they put art on the playtest cards, it changed their experience of the game oh, yeah. in, in, in the days of Alpha, Beta, Gamma. And <laughs> so, you know, and we are both giant fans of Drew Tucker art, independently, <laughs> yeah. ironically. You know, yeah. I had come to the conclusion long ago that Drew Tucker was my favorite artist. Yeah. And his work on the dark is just, and you think of cards in the dark like, what stands out to you? When you think of the dark, what cards and their iconic images stick out to you? From a first card, I always think of is ball lightning. The first card for, I for always, many many reasons. The first card I always think of is the fallen. <laughs> I with, love the fallen. That, those that face and those sunken eyes. I, I like. I really like the drown. <laughs> which was the blue uh, drug skeletons. Oh, weird. The yeah. pirates that were all drowned underwater. A yeah. blue creature that regenerated for black mana. So, so you're right. Uh, you and I both are definitely on the same page. The flavor and the mood of the dark is awesome. From a mood standpoint, it is one of the highlights of Magic's history. Yeah. And Innistrad is so definitely evocative. trying to evoke that. Yeah. But interestingly enough, though, the dark does not have very much, if any, mechanical tie to that setting. And mm -hmm. by, by that, right. I mean the, some of the mechanics they've chosen for Innistrad are inspired by the mood and... So they're trying to have that top-down approach where the mood informs well, the design. One of the reasons, one of the things that made me think of the dark is the fact that you said the dark did a number of things that were had not been done before. Mm -hmm. But one of them was to mix enemy colors. Oh yeah, that's and right. It sounds like they're returning to that in this in this set a little bit. And and one of the specific ways that they did that is you said there are no elves, <laughs> but the elves of dark shadow is from the dark. Elves of deep shadow. Deep and shadow. You're right. Thank you. That's and and you're right. The enemy colored. In the dark was a, a breakthrough. You had the gold card that was enemy colored, the yeah. dark card of the woods. Dark card of the woods. Yeah. You had like cards that, like you said, like uh, the, the the drown, the drown. You had activations, yeah, electric yeah. eel. Yes, <laughs> yes. So Innistrad is going to be no stranger to changes to the game, new and new things. So the mo the most noteworthy of this are the dual faced cards. Well, so, wait, 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 what? For the first Dual time, faced cards. <laughs> for the first time in the history of the game, we're going to have cards that don't have the traditional deckmaster magic back. They have two different faces of cards on the opposite sides. So, does that mean that artist proofs are now legal? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that's a fascinating question. I assume that there will be two artist proofs for each half of that card. <laughs> Not the first thing I thought of, but that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> the reason they're going with the dual face thing. What is about other artist proof cards? The other, like older artist proof cards. What like, do you mean? Like, you know, the Merchant Scroll card I own. Yeah. What about them? Uh, they don't have additional backs, so are they making non traditional back cards legal now? Uh, oh, boy, that's an loaded question. The short answer is obviously yes. These dual face cards are non traditional cards, they don't have a magic back, and they are legal. So the short answer is yes. The long answer is they're having to revise the rules for how you treat them in various settings. So are they carving an exception, or are they, are they creating a universal new rule? They are, as far as I know, creating a universal new, new rule, but, but we have not seen the, the full let's official get, let's update. Let's get to that in a second. Yeah. We got, we're still starting at what is in a trod. So. Right. So this is the biggest thing. This dual face, this is groundbreaking. So, I mean, we've had cards that turn over before. I mean, yeah. Arari, Arayo. Yeah. And Along what, a different axis from, of the what card. Is from Champions? Or what sets that from? Yeah, Kamigawa had Kamigawa. the flip cards. So now we have cards that are literally flipping over. You see yeah. dual face, you mean... There's a car, another card in the back. Right. A magic card. A functionally different card on so the back. So how do you determine what's the face of the card and what's the back? The the theme that came up with these flip cards is transformation, which is a common trope in 
gothic horror. That's what Arayo does. He transforms. He That's goes right. from being like a little dude to a big one. That's right. And we've had transformation with the, the merfolk things that level up, leveling. And, up. and we've had morph too. So and transformation morph. is not morph. a new concept yeah. to the game. Right. But they wanted to take it to a new level. So they're doing this. And there are who many different ways. <laughs> well, basically, Mark Rosewater was the one who was driving the, driving the flavor in the top-down approach. Isn't, but the dual face Richard card, Garfield involved in the set design? Yes, he is on the design that's, team also. That's awesome. I know, I know. <laughs> the dual face card thing, though, we've come to learn, came out of basically the other one of the other games that Wizards of the Coast develops, which is the, the Dual Masters game, which I know nothing about, except that they had dual face cards mm. that came out about a year ago. So in terms of card gaming, this trend is not this is not a groundbreaking in the industry. But when they were discussing the nature of transformation and how they wanted to evoke that from a from a mechanical standpoint, I believe it was Tom Lapilli who pointed to this other game that they make and said, "Look, we've done this. Can we try that?" <laughs> and there are obviously a host of issues that it brings up, and they've had to, to address them all. It's like an unglued card, a <laughs> <laughs> silver bordered set. So. <laughs> Most of the, now I can't say this definitively without reading a whole bunch of background info right now, but most of the dual face cards are werewolves. They are trying to evoke, and I'm answering a question you asked a moment ago. Yeah. Most of the dual face cards what's are werewolves. What's face and what's back? They have a day side and a night side. Like Jekyll and Hyde. Sort of, yes. Well, and Jekyll of Hyde is actually represented in a card. Not by name, but in flavor and mechanically mm-hmm. as a flip card also. It's the card like, is called... It's not like that's under copyright. They could have done it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they could have and they chose not to. The card is called Civilized Scholar. Oh, okay. And it transform. It's a blue creature and it transforms into a red creature called Homicidal Brute. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it is clearly Jekyll and Hyde. They should have done white and black though. Well... Uh, that's a, white and black is a Victorian color. They, you know? they like... had to... They did have to make some concessions in order to shoehorn this kind of gothic horror into the depth and breadth of the mechanics of magic. So let's talk, okay, I covered the night side and the dark side. That's the basic way you know the front and the back of a face card. They also have a tribal sub-theme that separates these various creature types into the colors. So So tell me what they are. Each tribe is basically spread across two colors. Werewolves are red and green. Okay. Well, see, now that's a very interesting point. I think they should be red and black, but you have to have a day color, yeah. And you also can't put everything in black, which is part of the problem. Every one of these tropes fits in black, basically. Ghosts and werewolves. Why couldn't... Uh, vampires. Yeah, vampires are black. Yeah, so everything is black. Everything's black, yeah. And so werewolves, they, d- they decided, are not so much evil as untamed and wild. Animalistic, so and, red and green. Yeah. Okay, I buy it. I'm so, with you. I'm with you. There are ghosts, which are, I believe, oh, blue and white... There's some green ghosts too. Um, <laughs> there are there are vampires which are blue and black. Okay. I'm not oh, strike that red and black. Vampires okay. span red and black. Werewolves red and green. Uh, I, I I'm sorry. So I'm what forgetting are the tribes? Things. There's ghosts. There's vampires. Ghosts, vampires, werewolves. vampires. Werewolves. Humans. Humans are white. Humans are a tribe. Humans are a tri- well, and see that's a very interesting. But humans point. become vampires and they become ghosts and they become hence. Va- Hence Werewolf. the transformation sub-theme, but yes. it's important to note, and they address this, humans that humans, also blue. humans are fundamentally the primary protagonist of the story. So humans can be white and blue? Are they blue? No. No, they're well, not. No, they are. There are there some are. blue humans. I mean, like, look, look, um, there's, there's, some bleed, there's some bleed over here. It's not, it's not, uh, that's nice. It's not 100%. <laughs> like I said, there are, there are ghosts in green and white and blue, so it's not 100% okay. adherence. There are blue humans, of course. But that's what tricky. I, what I wanted to get at things in these colors. is that humans are the primary protagonist of this whole story, and they're also the source of the primary conflict, which is humans 
versus, versus all these other things. Right. So it's it's almost like white versus all the other colors, kind right. of, in this setting. Although not completely, because there are green humans well, as well. Isn't that what the dark was? I mean, it was like the angry mob, the, you know, <laughs> the well, preacher. But there's also plenty of things in the dark that don't make much sense, like ball lightning, for example, <laughs> electric eel. It's not like electric eel was a, was a tribe. Anyway, the, one of the things I wanted to point out, though, is that tribe is not it's not overarching in the sense that not every it's, black creature is a vampire. It doesn't even sound like we're talking about tribes. I mean, like, ghosts aren't a tribe. It's not like the ghosts get together and say, let's go, you know, kick some werewolf butt. <laughs> there are you know? spirits in blue, and there is a spirit right. lord that's been I mean, like, that's been leaked. I could see vampires being a tribe, but it doesn't seem to me like vampires are inherently conceptually tribes. And so you know, they, like, not every black or red creature in the set is a vampire. Not every red or green creature are, is a we werewolf. are confusing tribes with... It's themes. Classes. I mean, like, themes. What, is the, what are the things? Like, what's a cleric? That's not a tribe. That's a... That's that's a job. Yeah, and, but... It's, it's so the, the, a job. No, In magic the, terms, what do they call that? No, that's, 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 they don't call it jobs, but... There's the, a creature type, subtype, and then there's a... They are all subtypes of okay. creatures. So, in mechanical terms, cleric and priest and werewolf and human are all functionally equal. They're on equal okay. footing. But from They're a flavor standpoint, equal. yes. Yeah. From a flavor standpoint, though, they serve different purposes. Yes. A tribe can speak to a race of a, of a creature, right. a species, there's race, or just a and job, then there's, uh, occupation, occupation. <laughs> sure. So you're right. So I'm things. a merfolk wizard. So I am, vampire I to be a merfolk, but I'm also a wizard. <laughs> vampire is not an occupation. There's a creature in here that I wanted to point out that has the creature type. So you could have vampire cleric. There's a, there's a, <laughs> there is a vampire scout. Oh, <laughs> which is fascinating. Uh, vampire interloper, one black and one, two one flying. Vampire imp- interloper can't block. Two one flyer okay. for two, can't block. Okay. He's a vampire scout. Okay. So there's your tribe plus your occupation. Occupation basically. <laughs> Not every creature has both those. But anyway, what I'm what I wanted to be clear about is the tribes are important, but they're not overarching. It's not like Lorwyn. Is there actually a ghost tribe though? I mean, like, is there going to be a ghost lord? Well, see, your question belies a certain level of degree. Is there a tribe? Yes. If there are two, if there are two or three ghosts, there's a ghost tribe, right? The point is, it's not it doesn't dominate the mechanics of the set. So that's it's just a feature. It's like, what do we mean by tribe? Usually, yeah. what I mean by tribe is there is an intent in the design process to provide specific kinds of synergies that represent certain kinds of coordinated action if yeah. the theme were to be manifested. So, for example, you have lords mm-hmm. that boost, mm-hmm. and you have cards that boost each other in other ways, like give each other tokens or power-ups yep. or things like that. And in that sense, there is absolutely a ghost tribe. Okay. There may not be a ghost lord. There's a spirit lord in blue, but th- the point is there may not be every feature of what you're describing, yes. but those features exist. What's the difference exist. between a ghost and a spirit? <laughs> That's a fantastic <laughs> question. And to be Could perfectly spirits honest, be not undead? To be perfectly honest, the creature-type ghost they did not use. They are all spirits. Okay. So a spirit is a ghost in this particular okay. lingo. <laughs> you misled me. Sorry. No. <laughs> I know that Get Magic has <laughs> had some ghosts in the horribly. past. I think they've all been eroded to be spirits now. What's the very iconic ghost uh, image where there's like a woman in a veil and she's like, you know what I'm talking about what is that from which set i don't remember one of the middle middling sets from like probably 10 15 years ago sorry i I can't picture which one you're referring to if if you're listening to us the the reader i think it's a white creature and she's like she's like imagine like the white version of bog wraith you know sort of like but she's Mm -hmm. like bending over something anyway it sticks in my mind (laughs) i don't know what it is so i think she was a ghost one of the things that i have noticed in seeing the cards we have seen so far is that this top-down design has produced a lot of mechanical splintering there's there are themes there are things that we've got flashback back Mm -hmm. for instance which evokes coming out of the graveyard oh yeah very good and there's a new card advantage there's a new keyword called morbid which is a triggered ability that 
is featured on mostly permanents that refer to when a creature has gone to the graveyard or when a creature has died. Don't we already have that? We do not before this set. Isn't there a... Uh, an, uh, there are plenty of cards when that... When a card tr- would go to the graveyard, it does No, something. no, there are plenty of cards that trigger off creatures dying. Don't get me wrong. But now okay. it is a keyword. So are they going to errata send your vampire with morbid? They might. They very well might. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but most of the morbid keyword... vampire will be reprinted in this set? Is it in is it in M twelve? Um it is. It's in M twelve. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I was drawing a blank because I was thinking about Sanger Baron Sanger for some reason. It's already been reprinted and I know that's tied into okay. this whole theme. So morbid is just is mostly so far as we've seen a keyword about uh, permanence coming into play. If a creature has died earlier in the turn, they get a bonus. That's that's basically how it works. So, so it'd be far. like morbid plus one plus one, something like that, or you gain some life or whatever. No, but I mean, in the case of send your vampire, it'd be morbid plus one plus oh, one. Oh well, it wouldn't be quite so succinctly worded, I'm sure, because oh. more it's it's more like morbid dash. Well, if more, a creature, it's it's fully I, written out. I just asked. I mean, you're talking. Look, th- yeah. th- this is I'm learning no. about all this for the first time. I, I didn't know there was flashback I, in this. Ask, I didn't know that. I wasn't. But you're being, asking a very mechanic, well, a very said, semantic question. And, and, and I'm, <laughs> no, it would not be morbid. So you said morbid is. It would not be morbid. Creature dies. So morbid, in my view, would be the keyword that the symbol that represents when a creature goes to the graveyard. <laughs> yeah. And then so it'd be morbid colon plus one plus one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm getting at is that they, don't, like they that. don't write it that way. Okay. The modern templating is not quite so succinct when it comes to new keywords. Like well, I mean, hexproof. vigilance is. I understand know, that, but look at hexproof. For, what is hexproof? I don't remember. Hexproof is troll shroud where your opponent can't target stuff. <laughs> I love that you're giving me a you're giving me as a mechanic by defining it with another mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> troll shroud's not a mechanic. Oh, you're right. right. Shroud is a mechanic. You're right. Right. Okay. Hexproof is the is the it's half shroud. shroud. You can okay. target it, but they right. can't. It's troll shroud. Right. The point is, hexproof is frequently written out as the whole description of hexproof. You can target this, but your opponent can't. Blah okay. blah blah. Morbid is the same way. It says okay. morbid dash. If a creature went to the if a creature died this turn. This comes into play with this, or you gain three life or something. It's written out. Anyway. That's not the same, because hexproof is the same on each card. <laughs> I know. I I'm know. just trying to understand. Not all mechanics are written in quite so, give, so succinctly me, an example. Aren't they? I can't think of an They're example not. that isn't. Storm is. Flashback not. is. Flashback well, Flashback is a good example because it's not. Flashback has a different casting cost. <laughs> exactly. No, but that's, that's, that's a good one. Like exactly. Flashback. That's the point. Lots no, but of flashback, modern mechanics. No, wait, fla- I take that back. Flashback is. Flashback is, all it is is you're replaying the card. And the, the effect is the same. There's no card that has a flashback effect that's different than the spell itself. So Fervent Denial says counter-target spell. Yeah. The flashback right. is the same. Ancient Grudge is the same. So I can't think of a single mechanic off the top of my head that varies from card to card. So why couldn't it just say Morbid plus one plus one? Or Morbid gain three life? Or Morbid lose three life? Or Morbid target player discards a card? The short answer is it could, and it doesn't. Well, why doesn't it? I mean, you have to ask Mark Rosewater so and a number of fir- other people. Is this the first mechanic then? That no, it is not. There well, are give me many. Another, give me another example. Hexproof. But, you, but hexproof <laughs> is the same. Hexproof is... No, no, no. What are you asking? My question is... <laughs> what am I, Sorry, I no. jumped to the conclusion of what you were asking. Hexproof specifically says... I mean, hexproof is the same on every card. It's You can target it, your opponent can't. Sure. So it's the same. Yeah. Vigilance is the same. Every, I, again, I can't think of another... Re- mechanic. Reinforce. What's reinforce? You may discard the card from your hand if you do. It puts count plus one plus one counters on the creature, and it has a variable amount. You put a plus one plus one or two plus one plus ones. Okay, flashback. Cost. The, the flashback costs vary as well, but flashback is the same. But reinforce will put different numbers of counters on, on yeah, the creature. Yeah, and, and so so does uh, the flashback has different mana costs. You're so asking same, me for a keyword right. where it does a different thing depending on it the card. It doesn't do a different thing. The only thing that changes is the the quantity. 
The mana quantity on flashback and changes. A, and that's a different thing. No, but, no, that, no, it's not. That, you're it's, talking about the cost is different for flashback, but not the result. The result is always the same. The result the is always the same. And you're right. Yes. With reinforce and with morbid, the cost is sometimes. Well, morbid doesn't have a cost. It no, triggers, but, but the example. result is all. It, the, the point is, this is not new. <laughs> what you're describing right. is not new. Whatever. It really is. We'll, we're getting but... into the specifics of how things are printed on the cards. There, are, there are a handful of keywords that are written out in some cases and not in others. Protect, I, I know protection that, is a good example. I understand that. Understand that's often done because they want to incl- they want to provide the description of what the thing is in as many cases as possible. Exactly. And sometimes they don't. Not because they just think, oh, we're not going to do it here, but because of space and other reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's not that's not doesn't answer my point. My point is, is there another mechanic in existence? Where the mechanics definition changes from card to card, it seems to me that there isn't. You're you're making an implicit judgment there, though, about what the definition of a mechanic is. Yeah, morbid. Morbid is a triggered. Morbid is a triggered ability. Yes. On, that looks back in time to see if a creature has died That's this fair. turn. That's, That's the mechanic. So it mechan- has a different result, just like flashback has a different metal result. Metal is a mechanic that ha- is a condition yeah. has different results. Exactly. They're specified. So I guess that's close to that. Okay. Yeah. There are plenty of variations. So of it could be like metalcraft. Metalcraft is a trigger. Something. It's a trigger. It's not. It's a state-based effect. But okay. I'm using trigger not <laughs> in the sense of of magic. I'm in the in the terminology of the rules of magic. You got I'm it. Using in a general sense. You got it. Yeah, it's a trigger just like more of a trigger, and then it has an effect, which mm-hmm. is specified by the card. Exactly. So it's like Metalcraft. Okay. There you I'm go. satisfied. There you go. <laughs> so Morbid is just one example, though, of all the themes that are being brought in here. Flashback is meant to evoke, uh, re- uh, boy, recycling, returning things from the dead, that kind of thing, even right. though it exists on spells. So, and there are plenty of, there are multicolored cards. We've seen a two-color Vampire Legend already. Wow. So we're going to have that. They're printing, Is it blue-black? It's red-black. Vampires are red and black. Oh, you said that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they are printing the M10 duels in enemy colors, five-land cycle of the M10 style. What, what were those? The, those it the, comes into play untapped if you control one of the basic land types that okay, it is. Right. Okay. So we've got the enemy cycle there coming in. There are. So, so, the, so just to recap, the themes <laughs> to beat the dead, the <laughs> undead horse. <laughs> the, nice. The mechanics are morbid and flashback. There are more than just that, though. There are the, the dual face cards. And the dual face cards. There are. Are there any flip cards? <laughs> not, not that we seen so card. What if there was a what if there was a dual face card that were both flips? <laughs> they will not be doing that. <laughs> you have to. It, it's it's basically like Chaos Orb now. <laughs> they could bring back Chaos Orb. <laughs> nice, nice. There are okay. there are going to be some other things that we haven't seen yet. We've only seen sixty three cards out of the set. But they haven't announced all the mechanics. Well, I think they may have. Honestly, I think they may have, but I need to go back and reread some of it. Don't they have a product page? And they'll <laughs> yeah, but they don't put it all there. There's, okay, you, have okay. to, you have to okay. really work to find well, all of this information. Flashback has tremendous vintage potential. Oh, I mean, absolutely. just look, the, look, what are the cards that, are, that see Flashback with in, in vintage play right now? I can name a bunch. Ancient Grudge, Cabal Therapy, uh, Flash of Insight. Dread Return. Dread Return. But are, are those all from the same set, or did they spread those out? Maybe? Oh, no, they spread those out. Over one block or multiple blocks? No, multiple blocks. Ancient Grudge came out in, in so Time So there's the original block, and then they yep. brought Flashback in second Judgment. time. And they continued to, to produce for Vintage. Right. So there, we have every expectation there might be some good Vintage playable Flashback cards. I would be very surprised if there wasn't something that was Vintage playable, or at the very least, constructed playable in Eternal right. to draw a bit of a distinction. There was also, remember, uh, the Zap... Uh, what was the Zap card? Flame, Not Flame Jab... Um, 
Flame Flame Jab is the retrace no, no. version. The, what was the flashback one? Yeah, uh, you're thinking the Second Mountain Lava Dart. Lava Dart. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was that actually won a Waterbury one year. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Carl Winners. Uh, Richie beat Carl Winner yeah. in the finals. Yeah. So uh, you're completely right. Flashback has already cemented itself it as a mechanic that sees play in vintage specifically and eternal in, eternal it, in general. It doesn't seem like Morbid will have very much application in vintage though. If it's predicated no. on creatures dying, no, probably now, not. I mean, so uh, what's the um, the mechanic that was originally in Mirrodin, where if artifacts went to the graveyard, you could add a counter to a creature. Oh, you're talking about the Ravager mechanic modular. Modular yeah. saw some play in Vintage, but... It did, but only partially because of the modular, right. really, just because of the affinity mechanic, moreover. Right. So, I, I'm not hopeful or optimistic <laughs> that... I'm not optimistic that Morbid will see any Vintage no, play. I wouldn't expect so. It, how aggressive would it have? Just think, just let's hypothetically, play this thought experiment. What would it have to be? You mean to, Morbid? Yeah, what kind of Morbid... What kind of benefit would have to be provided for... I mean, because, again, you're presenting all this information for the first time. It's fascinating. I'm <laughs> sure. just thinking about vintage applications. What would Morbid have to do? I mean, this will thinking this through will also help us evaluate the set when, when it's fully spoiled. What would Morbid have to do to be vintage playable? I mean, so if a creature dies, yeah. meaning go to the graveyard, what, what... That's such a rare occurrence... I mean, what, well, is sacrificing considered dying in, in, in the yes. parlance? So, yes, it is. So if I were to sacrifice something to, like, diabolic intent or calling the weak, <laughs> I'd get a bonus. But I would have to have the, this other thing in play. Are creatures going to be the only creatures, the, are the only permanents that have morbid, or will other permanents have morbid? That is, the only ones we've seen so far are creatures. So it's but safe to presume that that's the case? I would say the majority, probably. Uh, I mean, is it likely there will be an enchantment or an artifact with morbid? I would say that's pretty unlikely. I would say that... Or a land? Nearly all or all will be creatures. Okay. And so, to answer so, your question very simply, I would say they would have to provide card advantage in the yeah. vintage sense, meaning straight up like drawing draw card. cards, right? If a creature goes to the graveyard, draw a card. Yes, Ooh, but, if that, but if that was on a creature, yes. and that was the salient rules yes. text of said creature, it's not going to see any play in Vintage. There's already Are you a kidding me? If there's a one black creature, like Disciple of the Vault, except instead of saying when a card goes to the graveyard, you put... Actually, Disciple of the Vault has morbid for artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> but, like, imagine that thing said, when a creature goes to the graveyard, draw a card. I could see that card might be broken. Well, you're I mean, I mean, talking about a combo. You could you aspect, would just create right? a combo. Yeah, it would be like enduring. You know, yes, like you it would could, be like enduring renewal. Uh, like you could create combos. Like I see. Which I was like sorry. I was or something. I like. was thinking purely about value. About when this comes. See, here's the thing. The ones we've seen so far are they trigger when the permanent comes into play. It says when this comes into play. If a creature died earlier this turn, this permanent gives you some kind of bonus. That's what we've oh. seen so far. It's not like a sitting in play every oh. time a creature dies. That's better then. That's better. <laughs> it's different and, and it has other applications. But so, That's a lot better because you don't want, in Vintage, you can't be sitting around expecting a permanent to be in play when it, something happens. It is more flexible. You're right. Yeah. You can do something. You can do, have some it's creature like combat. Storm. It can happen just you, you, yeah. something you keep track of. Yeah. So in terms of value, the first thing I thought of was a, a, a workshop kind of card. Hmm. A, cre a card you would want in a workshop mirror, for example, when there's actual creature battling going on. Creatures are dying. You play this post combat and has some great effect. Morbid, morbid <laughs> like destroy trike, an artifact or like like a trike. It'd be like 
It could be something like, like for example, a casting cost creature that says, if a creature died this turn, it's like a 4-4 four, four with three counters. But yeah. if it, a creature died this turn, it comes into play with six counters. Right. Something like that. You're right. Yeah. Something that fits into the workshop archetype, goes well in scenarios that that deck is going to get into. They should make that card. <laughs> it should cost five. It should cost five. <laughs> it should It should be only a 3-3, three, three, like, so it's, it's, it's you know, not as big as Trike. <laughs> yeah. But Morbid. Plus, th- plus three, plus three. I like it. I like it. I, see, I like where your head's at. <laughs> Such a thing is certainly possible. I do not believe that artifacts are going to feature... Artifact creatures are going to feature you, very powerfully you know in this set. would be cool, just depending on what you've described, this, that you, I imagine as well, because we just had the artifact set. Sure. But it would be very cool that they had Death Touch. Death Touch would seem like natural. I mean, for this, I mean, like... Uh, except how are you going to... Are you talking about... Is this subsequent... a mechanic for this set? For oh, this I see what you mean. Like, Death Touch is a very horror themed, you know. Well, I would be very surprised if we didn't see some of that. You're right. Death touch. Uh-huh. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Go ahead. Continue. So we were talking <laughs> about... So what would Morbid what have would Morbid... to be to be playable in Vintage? I see it. It would have to straight up draw you cards very but cheaply. But it's all in Creature. Or... So the Creature would have to be amazing. Yes. I the mean, Creature would have to be amazing, which is it, why I first went to opinion, a workshop. In my opinion, it would have to... Okay, so it would have to be... And then here's, here's what I'm thinking off the top of my head. It would, And this is probably what I'll say in my set review. <laughs> it would have to be an enormous bonus. Yeah. So like... If we're talking about the bonus being power and toughness, like Sengir Vampire, right? It would probably have to be like at least plus three, plus three, and probably plus at least plus four, plus four. At which point, like, you're... so you've got like a, for example, a Tarmogoyf type card. Like, you no, know, a good example is um, you're thinking of like Bloodthirst. You're thinking along the no. lines of Bloodthirst. I'm thinking of like along the, what's that card I was using in Grow recently? The Red Creature. When you play an instant or a sorcery, it gets plus three, plus Kiln Fiend. Kiln Fiend. Yeah. yeah. So it'd have to be a bonus like that. Like that's a good point. But bigger. Because your creature's dying, <laughs> you'd have to be like, like, like. Well, the kill feed bonus. Be a... Why is your creature dying? Oh, it's any creature. A creature. Yeah. A creature. So any creature dying has to get ginormous bonus. You know what? So you probably on. let ahead. me let me read you a card here because this corrects something I said a minute ago. Reaper from the abyss. It's six casting costs. Three colorless black, black, black creature demon. Six six flying, morbid dash. At the beginning of each end step. If a creature died this turn, destroy target non-demon creature. That creature does have what I said didn't, they didn't they weren't doing before. So it's it, a permanent. It has, has a permanent more. effect that trigger, yeah. triggers at so the end both. step. That gives more bit more flexibility. A lot of flexibility. Yeah. yeah. The other versatility. The, the one I've been thinking about all along, which is unfortunately quite bad, is Hallowhenge Scavenger, which is a five casting cost green elemental four five. When Hallowhenge Scavenger enters the battlefield, if a creature died this turn, you gain five life. See, anytime you put a mechanic and you're like, gain five life, that's a sure way to make it the worst example of that mechanic. <laughs> so I apologize on behalf of myself to the design team that I'm give, that card is coloring my impression of Morbid. But, well, it's funny. I'm thinking about this without having seen any of these cards. So my, my yep. conceptualization is completely abstract. Yep, 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 yep. So, so let's Honestly, go back to the question. Honestly, now would I think be... about it, we've only seen two or three Morbid cards so okay, far. Okay, so let's... let's and, and again, I actually find these kinds of questions... When I did my set review for Mir, uh, Scars of Mirrodin, before I looked at a single card, I said, okay, let's talk about Metalcraft. What are the conditions for playability in Vintage? And then that that those criteria that I developed became very helpful in my analysis. So right. again, let's think about what would be... Morbid playable, like playable and morbid. What would make morbid playable and vintage? I just don't think that a, a power and toughness bonus is going to be good enough. No. I don't think that destroying. We already have so many creatures that I mean, can increase their power to insane levels. I think maybe we can narrow our focus if we think, wonder what conditions do creatures actually die in vintage? Right. They die in very, 
very limited conditions. Creatures don't die. They're removed. <laughs> when you think about it, in the workshop matchup, or they for just example, don't die. Hercules Recall means yes. there's no morbid triggers. There's no morbid triggers. And Swords to Plowshares no means morbid there's no morbid triggers. triggers. Path and, to Exile. And how often do, like, <laughs> my match with Paul accepted, the Dark yep. Confidants actually die? Right. That whole match, how, <laughs> many, either... how many morbid triggers would there have been? Three? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, creatures... Their creature combat is so rare mm-hmm. in vintage. I mean, it's I don't want to say that it's rare, but it's usually like a uh, a peace exchange in the, in chess. Right. You know, it's like uh, I'll trade this bishop for your knight. It's not like you're actually getting at each other. You're just changing board states. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so that's why, again, that's why I went back to the workshops. If the, if a card yeah. is going to see play, it's going to probably in be workshops. in a workshop deck that can also take that's advantage fair. of scenarios where workshops. Where, where your own creatures could be the ones dying, I guess, is another right. way to put it. Oh, another way the creatures are, are removed in, in, in Vintage is Jace. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. bouncing them. So creatures so. dying is, is only less than half of the, the basically the way they go. So maybe like Chandra plus <laughs> new Chandra. <laughs> if there was a morbid creature like that Chandra. Reaper from the Abyss that triggered and destroyed artifacts... Yeah. There, now we're talking. There would be Now a, we're talking. There would be a replacement yeah. for Biashino <laughs> Heretic in Workshop Mirrors. Now we're talking. Ooh. There you go. <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's good. Like creature dies, destroy two artifacts. Or boom. Well, it's like have a three, to be two. Uh, depending well, it doesn't on cost, have to be. Hey, come if on, it just destroyed one, depending on the cost, it would still be very playable I yeah, think, in Workshop. That plays. would be good. Ooh, I like where you're going. Yeah. Unfortunately, and, like as I said, I don't think artifact creatures are going to well, feature very heavily in this set. We're a talking way, about a colored right. creature. If there's a way that we can get it to trigger, and duplicate is another way creatures are most oh, vintage. Jeez. <laughs> vintage is very undeath friendly. <laughs> <laughs> if we were to rank the way creatures leave the battlefield in vintage, death would be very low. On <laughs> oh, there is one way. Trigon Predator destroying, <laughs> destroying, like Slash Panther. <laughs> Talk about a way to fight Trigon, though. If you had a creature that said, "Whenever artifact oh, yeah. is destroyed, destroy target creature." Yeah. Wow. That would be That'd yeah. Be so Trigon so, Predator is one of the few ways. <laughs> wow. So um, so so it just seems like I think your your point about workshops is probably well taken. But if maybe there's a, a creature, let me put it this way. And I'm my view is now colored by. Or rather, informed by the creature you just read. Yeah. That said, like, if this is in play and at the end of your turn, if yeah. the creature died, destroy target permanent. Maybe if there's a... I think there's going to be a creature that costs one, zero, one or two that has morbid. And I know there probably isn't going to be a creature that costs zero. <laughs> but there's a creature that costs one or two, and is, the two casting cost spell has to creature has to be... Probably has to be a bear, or at least bear toughness. And has to be colorless is half the casting cost. And it has morbid and does something that generates card advantage, it could be playable. So, for example, if a creature dies and it allows you to, at a minimum, draw a card, yep. it probably has to say draw two cards, to be honest. Or draw I, cards that were somehow conditional on the creature that died. What if there was a creature like this? Black one, two one creature. Um, if a creature has died this turn... Draw two cards at the end of turn. So we're triggering at the end of turn. Triggering at the end step. That way, the creature doesn't have to be in play when the cards of creatures yeah. have died. Yeah. You know? or, or would it? How would it permanently no, work like that? It, it, if it triggers at the end step, it doesn't matter where it came in. It would look back to see. Okay, great. Would that be playable? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Not main deckable, at least. Yeah. Uh, part of the problem is you're competing directly with Dark Confidant. There, exactly. So that's, that's why, That's why. Yeah. you know... 
I understand. I'm just trying to think, you know, what what if it said draw three cards? <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm wondering. If the trigger condition is creatures dying, in a non-workshop deck, I would say, unless you're talking about something like Dark Times, it's just not yeah. main deckable. Yeah. I, I that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so drawing cards, I mean, again, what if the creature just cost one black and was a 1-1? One, one? It wouldn't change the equation at all. No. See our and you actually make it worse. See our prior <laughs> conversation about yeah. the power and toughness not right. always mattering when so, it comes to that. So what, what then? It, what? The, the, only way, the, the only way I can see that card being main deckable, especially... Destroying not, artifacts is, would be a good example. Cause but if it had some other relevant vintage ability... Would it, like, take another turn? Creatures, <laughs> creatures your opponent plays cost X more, creatures you play cost less. What if it just said take another turn? Not draw cards, take another turn. Oh, good grief. Don't you think... No, they can't print a card that has more than just, take another just, turn. I know that, but I'm... I'm <laughs> look, I understand I that you. that card would be broken in other formats. But I'm saying... Let's just abstract into vintage. In that case, you're you would that suddenly becomes a linchpin for a whole deck. Yeah, it becomes a combo. It becomes yeah. a combo deck. You would you would find a way to kill some of your own creatures. So you, <laughs> you would play mere servitors and skull clamp. Oh snap, skull clamp! <laughs> this might be home for skull clamp. Yeah, if, no. If the card you're talking about actually exists, yeah, no, no, skull no. Skull clamp would go very no, well. No, I'm saying the the mechanic morbid mm-hmm. might actually create a home for skull clamp in vintage. Mm-hmm. It could. It could. There's that's one of those things we need to be thinking about. When assuming we you can set. get all, assuming you can get all the benefit off of your own creatures dying. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now. The only thing is, you can't. You need to get the benefit, not necessarily at the end of turn, because you might want to kill the morbid creature. <laughs> yeah. So it needs to be like the benefit needs to happen as the creature dies. And we'll see if they do that. Would in that real happen? Time. Like, let's say there's a creature that has morbid and mm-hmm. it dies. It would we, trigger off itself. Would trigger off guard. itself. Okay, yeah. that's that was my assuming question. it was not worded if an other so creature. But let's yes. keep skull clamp in mind. I'm really glad you pointed that out because yeah. that's that's huge. Um, I think basically, fundamentally, so with the graveyard-based themes of this set, Skull Clamp is probably going to have synergy in a number of ways. Awesome. And it's Vintage is the only format where Skull Clamp is legal. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> EDH. Uh, well, so l- l- let, me, let me just circle back to something. Mm-hmm. I think that based upon the discussion we've had so far, it sounds like your hypothetical example of a creature that would trigger... Artifact destruction would be great in the workshop mirror. So mm-hmm. it would be a workshop sideboard card. Especially if it, it... The one that triggers only once when it comes into play is... We've already got that creature, yeah. basically. And we don't need it. What is it? Well, there's plenty of examples of three casting costs. Oh, red yes. guys that blow up. Yeah. yeah. We don't need that. No. But the creature that re- triggers repeatedly when creature's dying, yes. just sitting in play and blowing yeah. up stuff, would be reasonably, all things aside, it would be yeah. very good. Yeah. You could you could do some real damage. If um, it, and I, I have to believe that such a thing would be a red creature just by definition, yes, and therefore would probably fit well into a lot of the things we've talked about in the past with adding red to so, workshop decks. Let me, I actually want to ask you a theoretical question. Goblin Welder Go- would trigger Morbid. Oh, snap. Bingo. <laughs> um, so workshop seemed like a very promising opportunity. So especially if there's like a one, if there's a creature that costs like one red mm-hmm. and has an obscure ability that would be basically only good in vintage and not in others. It could be very playable. Like Goblin Welder? How many? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that would help with synergize with, you know what I mean? Like, like for example, Grill Shaman is really good in vintage and not so good in other formats. No, That's what yeah, I mean. Like something that would be specific. Yeah. Well, but going back to my sort of pseudo dark confidant, how many cards would have to draw to be vintage playable? Well, seriously. And it triggers at the end of the turn? Yes. Three. It would have I to draw three. have to be more. More. To really be good. You might be right. I think it's probably four. It, I think it's four. That's incredible. 
Um, I wanted to point because think out. about the think about there's the uh, hatching plans which doesn't see play. Yeah. Ideas Unbound doesn't see play. And there's lots standstill doesn't see play in vintage. Well, drawing three. We've had a big discussion about visions of beyond and all the related yeah. evocative cards that draw three and none of yes. them see play. Yeah, I think that's vintage. before. <laughs> well, I wanted to point out too that we've we've haven't talked about the dual the dual face cards flipping mechanic, and I think that bears. A, a bit of discussion here as well. That this morbid business could go on any card that we haven't seen yet. It could go on non-creatures. It could have bunches of interactions, just in general. Creatures dying in vintage, if you can create the loops yourself, is very abusable. We just don't happen to have a deck that triggers off cycling a bunch of creatures right now. It's certainly possible. Re- so what, repeat one more time. Uh, cy- was... if, if we had a morbid creature or a, mor- a card that had morbid and triggered off of creatures dying... You can abuse that kind of interaction in Vintage in general. We just mm. don't have a deck that does it right now. What if? Remember what if, Suicide Virus? Yes. <laughs> no, no, they have lots of loops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that the, um, Mere Servitors, like you said, and right. Skullclamp are ripe, ripe possibilities. Um, I just lost my thought. Oh, what if, what if instead of drawing cards, it generated mana? Well, that's the thing. Millions of permutations. Yeah. There's already a card right now, so we have Calling of the Week. We've talked about Diabolic Content, which is a demonic tutor when a creature dies. That's right. a card we need to keep in mind in evaluating these things. Um, and then, um, isn't there a card? There is a card. There's an enchantment that when you sacrifice a creature, it generates black, black, or one black. No, it's it's black and a one. Uh, it's not coming to me. There are plenty of cards that allow you to sacrifice creatures for mana. Ashnod's Altar is the poster child for yeah. colorless. There are, there are a number of cards that okay. have that same fun- anyway. fundamental interaction. But again, it's, it always comes back to how creatures... What are the conditions under which v- creatures die in Vintage? Right. The conditions are combat, right. very rare. Uh, lightning Bolts and uh, cards like uh, Lightning Bolt... Trigon uh, Predator. Trigon Predator. Ancient Grudge. Ancient Grudge, which are all artifacts except for Lightning Bolt. And um, Fire Ice and the card of, uh, cards like Diabolic Edict. Yeah. You know, where are played in Dark Times. So the... the most, the vast majority of ways creatures die, they're removed or bounced. Right. They're not, you know, oh, and trike, trike. Yeah. And then there's, of course, death, just, you know, like we said, combat itself. Yeah. Combat is, happens a lot in workshop mirrors and not in other mirrors. Right. Other matchups. So it, it seems to me that, that um, if we're going to abuse Morbid, it's probably going to be because you're killing your own creatures. I think yeah. that's the preliminary conclusion I can, we can come to. With the exception... <laughs> With the exception of workshops, oh, a workshop sideboard, sideboard card. card, yeah, and maybe dredge card, the dredge. I mean, oh, absolutely. Dred- no, dredge is a deck where creatures die. That's a very good point. <laughs> the, 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 but they the die because of and, and, and the combat. dread return. But the point yes. is, if there was any kind of card that sped that deck up by a half a turn, that had morbid, that specifically had morbid, that yes. did something like. Oh my goodness! If a, if a creature somehow had morbid, where you um, uh, so milled, where you looted, yes. draw and discard, that would be phenomenal. That would be phenomenal. So the creature does. would have to cost zero one or be dread return target. Yeah, and if it's a dread return target, it might be better than fate stitcher. So yeah, see there you go. Yeah, you could be dread return it, and then you sacrifice one of your bridge tokens. Mm-hmm. Do, would bridge tokens triggered morbid? Yes, tokens go to the graveyard. So, Temporarily, they do. <laughs> for a split second. They, they, they go to the graveyard, and then the state base effect removes them from the game. Okay. 
Well, so, how yes, many people actually put them into the graveyard and then remove nobody them? Nobody ever does. Okay. <laughs> so they don't actually. <laughs> the, to- the token as a proxy for a thing in the game never goes Next to the graveyard. Next time we play, I'm going to insist that you put it in your graveyard. <laughs> Judge! <laughs> we we got to move on. we got to move on. This, this is really fascinating. This is a fascinating discussion. It is, on. but we've got more to talk about. Okay. This, the dual-face cards, which are so groundbreaking. But I, th- I, I think we actually answered the question, though. Yes, I agree. I agree. All right. <laughs> but, you don't have to say that fast. We're going to talk more about it, though. <laughs> That's I, true. I'm looking at the time. Yeah, we, yeah. This dual-face card business, most of them are werewolves, and they trigger off a very interesting condition which applies to vintage. <laughs> this so dual-face card business. What is this? <laughs> I, want, I want you to, to internalize this for a second. Okay. All of the werewolves yes. start off on their, sun, on their day side mm-hmm. as a human. They may have other types, too. In fact, I think they're all human werewolves. You give something. me too much to internalize. <laughs> humans on the day side, okay. werewolves, werewolves on the, the night, night side. They all have the same transformation trigger conditions. On the day side, okay. at the beginning of each upkeep, each upkeep, if no spells were cast last turn, transform. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. So, and then if no spells were cast last turn, transform. Yep. So it's basically you go draw go. You're against your blue white opponent. You get a bonus. He turns into the werewolf. That's right. And then the, all the werewolves okay. have, hold on, all the werewolves have at the beginning of each upkeep, if a player cast two or more spells last turn, transform. <laughs> transform back to the human. Into the human. So the idea is to evoke day and night. But right. the absence of activity is the shift into night. Okay. So the humans become werewolves. Hold on. That's just that's the rationale. Yeah. And yeah. then the flurry of activity during the night Triggers. is to trigger it back to day. Isn't that exactly the opposite, though? I mean, it's, in you have life, to, you have to in give life, some... don't, don't people, like, go to sleep during the night and then, like, nothing happens? And that's the point, though. I would is that... do it the exact opposite. Yeah. I would say that, that, that if no spells were played, if two or more spells were played, transform. If no spells were played, transform back. That's what I would. That's how I would design it. You, the point is, we're talking about the transition from one to the other. Yeah, and so I'm thematically, it makes more sense to have the spells triggering night rather than the lack of spells triggering night. I see what you're saying. The spells indicate the day when there's yes. lots of activity. Yeah, people are bustling about doing night. stuff. Even animals. But, animals don't do much at night unless but, you're nocturnal. Hold on, though. What if everybody played two or more spells from multiple turns in a row? That that I think evokes the continuation what of activity. Then? Well, the thing is, if someone plays two spells... Hold on, I, I didn't internalize the rule. If no spells are played, transform. <laughs> From if human two more to werewolf. spells on the previous turn, transform back. So, basically, if... if let me just go through some examples just yeah. to, to solidify this. Uh, I have the creature in play. It's a 2 I played a bunch of spells. I played a bunch of spells. Your turn. He transforms in your upkeep. No. Sorry. If you played the guy, yeah. he's a human, okay. and you play okay, let's say spells, I nothing play nothing happens. Let's say I play him. Because it's daytime. I play him. I play a bunch of spells, pass. Then you say draw go. Yeah. Then on my turn, he transforms. Because right. because your turn indicated the, the shift to night. Right. The lack of activity. And so I have to basically play spells to keep him. No. No, I have to do nothing. If if you play two spells, it indicates you've shifted to daytime. He's going to go back to being a human. So I have to say draw go the next or turn. play one spell or play one spell and attack. Yeah, or I can attack and then yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's it's spells played by a single player, by the way. So if I play one oh, and my opponent plays one, one, that doesn't, doesn't trigger anything. It's not storm, right? right. It's not storm. It's, it's like spells Arayo. played by a player. No, Arayo is is both it's, players. It's Arayo is all players. It's the okay. opposite of Arayo. Okay. <laughs> so all right. All of the werewolves have this same fundamental condition, the same fundamental definition of the transition from day to night. Okay, and it seems to me that that is antithetical to vintage. Vintage decks never go Drago. And I mean, what, they very rarely. And that's what I wanted to get at, was yeah. defining it in terms of spell count 
is it, it, it's very easily transferable into vintage terms. But the fact that the first action def- is defined on about nothing happening yes. means it seems very rare in vintage that right. any of these werewolves are ever going to transform. It's a tremendous cost not to play a spell. Right. right? So I would think that... There, hold on, though. There are certain decks, though. Your Gush deck, for example, can get into scenarios where you've got a Bob and a Trigon. You know, you flip your card with Bob. You're not going to go off that turn. You just draw your card, swing and destroy your sure. thing, say go. I mean, it's not out of the question. It's right. just in the early turns of the game so, where so much matters in Vintage, that condition is rarely going to be met. Here are the questions I'm thinking of. And yeah. let's, we can go through them. First of all... Um, in terms of evaluating the strength of any of these werewolves, should we be looking at the, the day phase or the night phase? Which is most probable? No, hold on. Don't answer that question. We'll come back. That's my first question. Okay. It's sort of like thinking about Metalcraft. You know, do you evaluate it without Metalcraft or with it? You <laughs> sure, know? sure. The second question I have is, um, what is most likely? Most of the time, will the card be a were- werewolf or a human? So those are my two questions. And let's, let's do I'd, go in reverse I'd like order. to add a third one, sure. though. Is can you reliably control... Yes, that's the a good state. one. Let's let's answer that question last. Okay. So, so let's start with the first. Most of the time, is the card going to be transformed or non-transformed? I would say, barring our answer to the third question, it's it's going to be a human. It's right. going to be day side. Exactly. Because you need to actually. Tr- and then the thing is, even if you do trigger the transformation, he's going to go back to he's going to go back to day in the next turn. If a player plays two spells yeah, when the wolf is let's out, let's be real. <laughs> you're, you're right. So you're, you're. So I would say at least like seventy-five percent of the time he's going to be day. Well, let's talk about timing. You play this creature; it won't flip. So again, they all trigger at the beginning of each upkeep. So you play it by yeah. definition; it won't trigger on your opponent's turn. Right. What the ideal scenario is: you play the guy, your opponent plays nothing, it flips on your turn, and you get to attack. Unrealistic. Let's Hold be on. Well, that's get, ideal, right? But ideally, you get to attack then with your better guy, the, the yes. werewolf version. I'm assuming there's some boost. There's oh, yeah. They are all they all get bigger and angrier. So it's much <laughs> better. And they're, they're mostly combat-oriented. So obviously, okay. they're, you know, they're wild creatures. Right. So ideally, that's what you want to happen. You want your opponent to play nothing. In Vintage, that's what I'm saying. Obviously, we that agree. That's rarely going to happen. Yeah. Unless you make it happen due to the other features Mystical of your more. deck. Mystic Remora. Sphere of Resistance. Mystic Remora. Lodestone Golem. Mystic sure. Remora. <laughs> <laughs> Letter Bomb. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, that, that, but that's why, obviously, the, the, the quick assumption is we want these things to be Mystic werewolves. <laughs> we want these things to be werewolves in order to get any benefit from having played them. Right. And but, if, but, if if left to their druthers, our opponents are not going to sit still and let them be werewolves. So, so we're going to need to force our opponents. So you're to. answering my second question, or the first question I asked in order that that we should be evaluating these cards as werewolves. <laughs> yes, and I say that simply Only because, because the non-human suck. The human sides all suck. You would never okay. play any of the human sides. Okay. Okay. So some of them are just vanilla grizzly bears. Mo- many of them are just vanilla grizzly bears or really? gray ogres at, or worse. Okay, so it's like metalcraft. They suck without the ability. Yes. I, okay. Yes. So when you do evaluate from the metalcraft, we need to recognize that the vast majority of the time these things are going are not going to trigger naturally. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to have some sort of inducement, like mm-hmm. mystic remora, sphere resistance. You're going to have to force your opponent either by denying them resources or by making I, it mystic remora. Decidedly, mystic remora is the most efficient way to do that. So Mr. Grimora seems like a really good... Well, except that if getting attacked by the werewolf, they can still choose to not get attacked by the werewolf. If they play spells, you draw. So, you know... So you're giving your opponent the choice about which one's worse. Uh, You're right. They can choose. But if they choose... It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You trigger the werewolf or you get to draw cards. That's true. That's true. You probably want to draw the cards. 
So you get the bonus of the werewolf then, right? Yeah. Because they're they're gonna they're not gonna play cards. They'd rather suck up some damage than right. Unless and the bonus is ridiculous. Unfortunately, a lot of the werewolves we've seen are just not that great. But there is one that I want to point out that becomes a three-one double striker. Ooh, yeah. He better cost one white. <laughs> no, unfortunately, he's a three casting cost red werewolf. What? His three days... casting cost? We get a three-one double strike? Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, I'm not. That's terrible. You. Three, no, three mana for a three-one double striker is not terrible. That's only six damage for three mana. That's not good. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, well, right, so. welcome to playable creatures. <laughs> three mana. For I demand at least two mana. <laughs> well, he's uh, rare. There might be a mythic werewolf okay. or two that have the kind of stats you're looking for. All right. So three casting costs. He's yeah. red two. You said red two. He's red red one. Red red one. Oh yep. God, could it get worse? I know. He does have another bonus though. Each werewolf you control can't be blocked except by two or more creatures. So look, he's hard to block. Do. Yeah, look, look. My blind steel colossus and my bob will block him. <laughs> just as, just as you, nice, just as you wanted blind to steel frame, attack Jace. <laughs> well, just as you wanted to frame Morbid in terms of what would it have to be in yes. order to be playable. That's what yes. I'm trying to do with these flip cards. And yes. Now I think we've honed in on what yes, it would I have to be. Have. I want to, I want to add though that. But we've, we've also are, noted that they're not going to be werewolves most of the time. They're just not. They're just not. You're right. Yeah. The, most of the time, like werewolves like, are not the only transformative cards though. Okay. Most of them are werewolves. Not all of them are. Ludovic's test subject. One blue and one. Two. So we're talking about a two converted mana cost creature lizard. Zero three defender. Okay. It has an activated ability. It's a wall. It's not a wall, but it has defender. What's its creature type? Lizard. Okay, lizard. Sorry. One blue and one colorless, colon, put a hatching, hatchling counter on Ludovic's test subject. Then, if there are five or more hatchling <sighs> counters on it, remove all of them and transform it. Oh, my God. That's a ridiculous... So, it's like, it's level, mana to activate. It's like leveling. It has to get to level five. It's ten mana. When okay. it transforms... This thing better kick ass. 13-13 trample. Not good enough. 13-13 <laughs> trample, unblockable, tr- you know... Uh, 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 indestructible, like, yeah. vigilance. Yes, everything. That better have the damn whole kitten caboodle. The, the Poison. Encycl- <laughs> the encyclopedia of keywords. Yes. For so you want me to spend ten mana? Okay, I get your point. You're showing this as another form of transformation. That's right. Okay, thank you, Rook Egg from the <laughs> blue terrible Rook Egg. Let's talk just for a moment for another okay. example about Civilized Scholar. This is Doctor okay. Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Mm-hmm. Three casting cost, Human Advisor, zero one worthless. Tap, draw a card, discard wait, wait, you, a card. Was zero one worthless? Yes, zero one. The word worthless is on the card. Uh, that's my okay. Okay, item. I was just making sure. <laughs> I wanted to draw a distinction. Tap, draw a card, discard a card. If a creature card is wait, discarded, wait, 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 wait. Tap, draw a card, discard a card. Yeah. This card costs one mana? No, it costs three. Oh, sorry. What's the casting cost again? Sorry. Three. Okay. One blue and two. Okay, thank you. One it's blue got loot. And two. Okay, sick. It, <clears> it's a looter. Yes. If a creature card is discarded this way, yes. untap Civilized Scholar, then transform it. Mm. And what's the creature that it turns into? Homicidal Brute is a 5-1 vanilla guy. At the beginning Aww. of your end step, if Homicidal Brute didn't attack this turn, <sighs> tap Homicidal Brute and transform it. Well, there are a lot a, of... Okay, the way I always approach this again is mm-hmm. what creatures see play and vintage with the same casting cost? Esperzoa and Saren de Befreed have that casting cost. Trinket Mage has that casting cost. Trinket Mage is playable. Mm-hmm. 
Esperzoa is marginally playable. Barely. Serendipity's not. No. So Trigon, Trigon almost is, has that casting cost. Trigon is true. Trigon and Click has has that, casting, has that cost. casting cost. So yeah. that casting cost is vintage playable. It is. Um, but all the creatures at that casting cost that are truly playable. The best ones. The best ones. I mean, Esperzoa actually has card advantage because you play it with things like... Click has, has es- card advantage, but card quality and card selection. Card quality and selection. And, and disruption of a dis- card. Disruption. Sorry, uh, Esperzoa, you can uh, recur uh, those CIP, CIP yeah, artifacts. That card doesn't see play. Yeah, I... Just saying. Just saying. Trinket so, Mage has straight up card advantage. Card advantage. So this card doesn't have card advantage. Well, we can save it for our it full analysis, but I'm not excited. No. Nope. I do like the fact... In fact, let me put it this way. I don't want that card to transform. <laughs> <laughs> You'd rather have a looter. That card is better as a 1-1 one, one looter. It's 0-1. Zero, 0-1, one. <laughs> zero, one, sorry. That card is better as a looter than a 5-1. You know what? You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Merfolk looter it is. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, we've only seen 60 cards out of this set. We've talked about the most groundbreaking mechanics, the dual-faced cards, the, the theme, the, the flashback, the transform. Do we know any of the flashback cards, or we should we save that for a future po- podcast? We do know them, and they're not very good. All right, well, let's just save it for a future podcast. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have to get better. Although I will tell you that there is uh, alternate color flashback costs, a, a la Ancient Grudge. Ancient Grudge we've already seen good. one card, so we know that's a feature of this good. set. Um, let me ask you something. What is the checklist? What is this business? Oh, see, now that's fascinating. The dual face cards have so many implications. One of them is in playing without sleeves. Okay. You have to be allowed to play without sleeves. I mean, they don't require you to. So in the case where you're not no, playing don't. with... Tournament Magic, they can require you to play sleeves. They, they don't. do, in fact. At FNM, they don't. Uh, well, I, my understanding is that all Tournament Magic re- required no, sleeves. It does not. Uh, my bad. And even if it did, it's not required for them to be opaque. <laughs> okay. So... You have to be able, because look when you're playing draft, yeah. it's not like you're opening sleeved cards. <laughs> you have to open cards that are unsleeved. So, so part of it is a different case, I suppose. That's right. Part of the way they've come to address this is in the case where you are playing with dual faced cards and you are not playing in opaque sleeves, you may use this checklist which lists every dual faced card in the set in place of that dual faced card in your deck. <laughs> And when you draw it, moreover, when you pl- when, it, when it would come into the battlefield, you so replace you, it with the actual card. You actually card. have to check the card in the checklist. Then? Yes, <laughs> it, you so have you to because face, thirteen you cards. You deface the card. You deface the card, which is another incredible thing. There are so many layers of incredible wow. Can you imagine here. how they had to like go through this? They're like, wait a second, wait a second. How's this going to work in draft? Yeah, I've got it. Let's create a checklist. <laughs> A checklist? What the hell are you talking about? Ironically, based on what they've described, you're not very far off. <laughs> so, yes, you have to you have to check. You have to, it's like one of those uh, tests, the Scantron tests at school. Oh There's a little dot that you're supposed to fill in. Exactly. You're supp- they specifically tell you not to write with an implement that will deface the card. I mean, that will change, that will, the, so you can see it in the back. I'm sure that. If you write with a ballpoint the, and raise yeah. a dot on the back, it's marked card. God. So this has a whole host of fascinating implications, but the most simple is they are effectively condoning proxies, something that is near ah. and dear to us as Eternal players yes. and Vintage players specifically. 
these are wizards. You need to create power proxy checklists. See power checklists. And I posted. I posted very quickly online after having seen the picture of the checklist card that yes. somebody needs to mock up one of these that has the power nine on it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which would be this so one is awesome. my black lotus. <laughs> It'd be so awesome oh for vintage my events. Goodness, that would anyway, be amazing. But the point There's is, no reason they can't do that. Proxies, you know that also, proxies are officially condoned and sanctioned right, events. There's now. so many things that we have to talk about about this. I know. First of all, a lot of power is unfortunately unusable. Uh, how do I want to put it? Yeah, because they're in these these cases. You know, oh, like I'm the, sorry. I was thinking of condition, but you're thinking no. of a whole other thing. Well, that too. I'm thinking of it's the graded, sealed, graded cards. Sealed away in a vault. You could go with your graded card, which is sealed in plastic, mm-hmm. bring it to the tournament. And play with the checklist. And play with the checklist. And anytime, it was, anytime it was in play, you could put your sealed yes. copy of the yes. card in play. Yes. Very good point. Excellent point. I see no reason why such a thing should not be allowed. That would allow people who are obsessed with the PSA, whatever, to mm-hmm. be able to do that. You could play with PSA 10 gem mint beta power yes. and never have it leave its case. That's a fascinating. Yes. I didn't even think of that. That's fascinating. So, obviously, Wizards is not immediately <laughs> coming out and saying, yes, proxies are now okay. The but they, they have, the they have obviously implicitly they opened the door. The door. Not yes. implicitly, explicitly. It's explicit. <laughs> it is a proxy. There is nothing implicit about it. This is not the card that you're the, playing. The part that's implicit is it does not explicitly apply to any other format. It, it is designed other, for dual face cards. I understand. Cards right now. I understand. Yeah. But the permission of that is sanctioning a proxy. But, period. But now that I say that, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm going to go back on what I just said. As soon as these cards are legal, they're legal and vintage, okay. which means this checklist is legal and vintage, which means the only yeah. difference is the checklist card is what's what's I, listed on the checklist card. I would love to see people in vintage start taking this up and creating those. So if you own PSA Power 9 cards, yeah. create a checklist. Or if you're a tournament organizer and you have players who have PSA 9, allow, permit them to do this. Just try it out. See what happens. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Create a checklist. My word. So... And, and the checklist, you know what? We should someone should come up with a vintage checklist. It, it would be far too large, but still. No, no, it, it would define what's permissible for vintage. So well, you've got power nine. You no, know, we, we don't want people there's, doing there's that actually for too many underground seat. We don't want them for doing that for underground seat. It's not too many. It's power nine, workshop bazaar, time bolt, and twister. No, I wouldn't allow put manager on the a hundred dollar card. You don't think is too much? I wouldn't put that on the checklist. Candle opera. I wouldn't put that on two hundred and fifty dollars. The value isn't as important as to me as simply as the demand is the uh, utility. So Candelabra isn't a top one hundred card in vintage seasonal play. Okay. You know, so Fair I, I'm just saying, like you could have a you know the twenty card checklist. There. Anyway, you get my point. I do get your point. Yeah. It's, it's, the point is not to argue over what would be on the yeah. list. The point is, is that the, you're right. The door is open. Yes. And. These checklists are ex- are explicitly legal in Eternal Magic. You could go play a werewolf deck at, at the Waterbury but if you want. But doing this would increase the supply of power. <sighs> Even marginally, it increases the supply. Do you think do you think the question should be not how does this apply but simply when will this become when will this become the standard for proxy? I think proxies that we should begin doing it immediately. No, no, no. So, sorry, I'm I'm not being explicit enough. To me the question is not if this will become Watsi's stance on proxies, but when? That's well, what I'm getting I at. Think it's, I think a really interesting case is Vintage Champs, which doesn't allow proxies otherwise, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you were to permit this, you could get more people to play Vintage Champs. Oh, can you imagine if this time next year... you're not? It's not like you're actually creating a proxy. There is a real card. It's just you're increasing the supply because some of the cards are no longer accessible for play otherwise. So it's a... You know, it would be a, a modest step that I think Wizards could actually do. Okay, you, you're right. And I was getting a little overzealous there. 
that this does not allow you to play with a card you don't have. Right. What it does is it allows allows us to... I mean, there's so few power in existence. Mm-hmm. Even if 3% of them are now PSA graded, that's a huge increase. That's a significant... Yeah. That's like 80 more cards. You know, yeah. like... <laughs> it's that many players that, that can't play in the event. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <sighs> I was just thinking it's not too far... And when you're dealing dual face oh, this cards, this is important. Oh, this this is interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> My whole proposal for loan, lending cards. Yeah. Have you heard? You saw the, the Mandarin thread on this. Yes, but help me. Okay, so someone was saying, is there a service for re- card rental? Yep. You know, this would be an excellent mechanism for that because when you rent a card, the danger is, well, what if the card gets shuffled and messed up? Mm-hmm. If you just rent the card in the hardback case and you got the checklist, yeah. you're literally going from the dealer, you know, swiping your credit card, renting your box sapphire for the day, mm-hmm. and bringing it back in the same case. You haven't even touched the card. Fascinating. You just are you know, able to use it for that tournament. So, you know, if we set up a rental system that's <laughs> that's cheap enough to support it, you know, that's you know, and both we can talk about the logistics right. of that. Yeah, I assume there are a lot of people balking yeah. at this as they're listening yeah. to this right now. I've actually thought you'd have to work through the system, but yes. the point is, rental is not a new concept in our economy. Right, exactly. <laughs> the rental model does work. There, right. We cars, can argue about rooms. right. Yes. We can argue about how it works with magic cards, but the point is, the model does work. Yes, and this would be a mechanism for doing that more vigorously. Right, and Check rentals us. allow more people to drive cars than would normally be yes. able to, and it also allow yes. more people to use magical cards than they could normally. And to, to have a home apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, this checklist issue is not over. You can pretty much guarantee so, it. So, how does the checklist interact with Illusionary Mask, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Steve. So, uh, one of the things that was hinted at about the dual-face cards, not hinted at, specifically mentioned about the dual-face cards was that they don't interact with Morph at all. If you try to, you can't morph a dual face card. If you try to transform, quote unquote, a face down morph card, nothing happens. Transform is not a mechanic that lets you flip over morph cards or do anything. I don't understand why someone asked that question. There's no face down. There's always only two faces. (laughs) You are correct. A dual face card is never face down, quote unquote, according to the magic lingo. It is never face down. It is in one mode or the other. But and it transforming is not the same as because face down might be okay. no they, as long as not. there's no down anymore. Well, you'll note that it's very elegantly these cards have two faces. Right. So so there, there was always face a face up. up. Right. There you go. <laughs> anyway, the point is is that morph and dual face cards don't interact basically in any way. Anything yes. you could think of that sounds problematic, it just isn't. Right. And one of the interesting questions is illusionary mask, which I asked on Twitter. Matt Tabak responded very immediately. Thank you, Matt. And he said. It, it is not a legal game action to play a dual face card, quote unquote, face down. You are not allowed to. It's you're not, not allowed to. You're not allowed to play a, a a werewolf through illusionary mask. You are not. You are wow. simply not allowed to because the wow. cards cannot be face down. Illusionary mask is so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh wow! Now, what about do the I, checklist? Do I agree with Can that? I play the checklist face down. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the checklist is based out. What's yeah, the, problem? the checklist is based out. The checklist represents the cards. So. I, I am not saying I necessarily agree with the conclusion, but they did it, I think, to avoid lots of potential issues. And Can I pitch the checklist to Force of Will? That's another very good point. The, the, the color identity of the card is ambiguous. Well, it's, it's like ambiguous. a gender identity. In EDH, their definition. Check- Hold on. What's the checklist? Two cards are checklist checked. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't ask. In EDH, your general has to be the colors of all both faces of the card okay. and any color represented there. But in 
regular sanctioned magic, the the sun the the, the sun card. I want to pitch the checklist to force of will. The daytime card. <laughs> Only co- was the only thing that determines color identity. Okay. Civilized scholar, which okay. is blue on the day side yes. and red on the night. Yes. You can pitch it to force so of will. So I can pitch my checklist to force of will. You can pitch it to force of will, but you can't pitch it to pyrokinesis. Let me ask you something. If I were playing Alliance Limited draft with with this set, with this set, and I have, what? so I'm playing. You're playing Alliances in this draft. Fallen yes, Empire's draft. draft. Yes. <laughs> I'm playing Alliances Innistrad draft. <laughs> it's Innistrad, Innistrad Alliances. And I have Force of Will. You open Force of Will. How lucky. And I, I have my checklist. I can only pitch the checklist if I've checked the face, the first face blue card, correct? That's right. You, <laughs> could, you can only, yeah, you would so, have to check sorry, Civilized sorry, Scholar. What, what are you pitching to Force of Will? This checklist. <laughs> check all the boxes. <laughs> this card what, is just everything. Ask me something. What if? Here's my rules question. Okay. What if I have that card that makes all my cards blue? So I've got uh, I've got that card. What is that card? Um, uh, this is why we no, can't no, have nice things. It's no. It's you. Know, it's used. It's the um, sorry, painter servant. Painter servant makes all cards blue, including the checklist. Does the painter servant apply to the checklist, or does it apply? Does it apply? Does it... The checklist is not a card named checklist. Okay, <laughs> it is a proxy. <laughs> when you write Black Lotus on an island, what if the Waterbury? What if I have painter servant? You don't servant. say what happens to my island. What if, what if I have painter servant? And the card that makes all cre- all cards artifacts as well. What card is that? The six casting costs, uh, yep. Lycosynth Lattice? Yep. Okay. And, the, and then I have a card that allows me to pitch an artifact from my hand. But <laughs> <laughs> pitch the checklist. And you said you didn't play EDH. <laughs> <laughs> I've never played it in my life. I'm serious. But this is these are fascinating questions. We're going pretty far afield of Innistrad right now. <laughs> I will also point out... I just want to know, Matt Tabak... I want to know when I draft alliances. <laughs> okay, the question okay. has been answered. What is the answer? I told you already. Yeah, Whatever to card the, card the checklist is okay. representing and is indicated, it's that color. It's <laughs> okay. the only the colors of that, you the You answered the question. Side. Thank you. Yes. There are equipment in Innistrad also. But, pe- but Painter Servant would make it blue, right? Yes, it would. Okay. It, regardless because of what's checked on the checklist, it, it, it would be blue. The checklist is a conduit for Painter Servant. <laughs> it's a proxy. Uh, okay. It's a simple Thank proxy. Thank you. Wooden stake, equipment, two casting costs. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus zero. Whenever equipped creature blocks or becomes blocked by a vampire, destroy that creature. It can't be regenerated. Wooden stake. That's right. Your guy just runs around with a wooden stake out, and if he interacts with a vampire, the vampire dies. Read it one more time. Casting cost is blue. Casting cost is two colorless. Mm-hmm. Artifact equipment, equipped creature gets plus one, plus zero. Cause it's What's stake. the equipped cost? The stake is pointy. One. Okay. Whenever equipped creature blocks or becomes blocked by a vampire, destroy that creature, it can't be regenerated. So it's immediately. It triggers immediately. There's no combat involved afterward. It's just, you blocked me, I got my stake in you. That's Boom. it. Yep. Over. Yep. Pretty simple equipment, pure flavor. It's yeah. barely even it, it, cool. one power bonus for two mana. That's terrible on the curve. Unplayable but, and vintage, but fascinating. But in limited, board that sucker in against black and red. <laughs> It'd be incredible. It's a awesome. it's a common, so it'll be in the sideboard a lot of decks and limited at the pre-release. Wow, <clears throat> proxies! All right, Innistrad. 
this is not the last time we're going to talk about it. In fact, no. our next podcast might be a full set review, in which case we'll have all kinds of things to say about Morbid and Flashback and, yeah. uh, and Flip Cards yeah. and whether or not any of the the werewolves are playable in Eternal at all. I'm most excited about Flashback, obviously. Um, but um, the Planeswalkers also have some huge potential. I mean, the idea of just... Planeswalkers have been vintage playable. Do you want to talk about the Liliana that's been spoiled? Let's do it. Three casting costs. Black, black, one. The second ever three casting cost Planeswalker. After the first Jace? That's right. Liliana of the Veil. Planeswalker Liliana. Plus one. Each player discards a card. That's good. Minus two. Target player sacrifices a creature. It's also good. Minus six. Separate all permanents target player controls into two piles. That player sacrifices all permanents in the pile of his or her choice. Weak. Starting loyalty is three. That's a weak ultimate. It's a pretty weak ultimate because, generally speaking, you're going to be divide. I mean, strange game scenarios are going to are going to yeah. arise, but generally speaking, you're going to take their creatures. You're going to well, split them up. You're going to take their second lands ability is really good. She's an edict. And, yeah. And as I said, and, and yeah. to our, some of our teammates, as soon as I saw so it, she starts with three. Yes. So she can immediately edict. She's a black then black one edict. edict. She right. can immediately edict and then duress. So to so use she, some of your methodology of comparing cards to vintage, yes. the casting cost is certainly playable. Playable. And the effect, if you just look at the Edict ability, the effect yes. is playable. Yes. And then she's got upside. Yes. The discard, I wish it was more targeted, but it's not. Yeah. The, the discarding, can act, your own cards can actually be a benefit, too. Especially when, since we're about to get a bunch more flashback cards. Yes, exactly. And with Goblin Welder, for Cabal example. Therapy, you could discard a Cabal Therapy. You could therapy. make a controllish kind of deck that Welder. had Deep Analysis and Welder. We've seen yeah. that kind of thing before. There's lots of reasons you want to discard cards. If you yep. have Blightsteel Colossus in your hand. Yep. Shuffle the back end. Yeah. With. Yes, immediately, the first two abilities of this Planeswalker are relevant, at least. The second one seems better. seems better. And the casting cost is about as good as you could expect from a Planeswalker in in Vintage. Especially a black one. I mean, black two would be better. for Vintage playable. Yeah. So the only question is, is there a deck where she goes? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And we'll see. I think as an Edict replacement, we will see that card. In fact, I would not be surprised if... um, I wish her ultimate was better. Her <laughs> ultimate's weak. Shuffle permanence? Give me a break. It's not shuffle. I mean, it's sacrifice. But in Vintage, the, her ultimate is not going to be very common. Just like any other Planeswalker that's ever seen play in Vintage, the ultimate is the least common ability. Tezzeret, Jace, right. Chandra the Firebrand. <laughs> a little fascinating so far. Good stuff. I know. So, so we done with, it, with all this? We're done with Innistrad for now. We'll get back to it in the future. up we want to talk about modern modern we don't want to have a long segment about the metagame because mostly because we're unqualified i have not done modern testing i've done a bit of research qualified (laughs) (laughs) but really the angle we want to take here is i mean look this is the the topic we want to talk about this podcast but we we got some surprise in the yeah and also, there's been a lot of articles and, and conversation about modern. Right. But our take is about the implications of modern, right. broadly speaking, as a format, especially with regard to eternal in general. Right. And tied back to one of our prior questions from this podcast, which is, not this episode, I mean, but from our show, being has legacy peaked, right. which we can talk about a little bit more later, that is inextricably tied to the notion of modern's ascension. Right. So, I mean, starting... 
look, the starting point is this. Modern competes with legacy, period. Mm-hmm. Now, Wizards can say it doesn't. Wizards can say, well, modern in no way you know, diminishes our support or the number of GPs that we anticipate for modern. Blah, but that's blah, blah. disingenuous because necessarily the creation of a new format creates less space for others. Right. It's like admissions. There's 10 slots. And you know? the process of elimination tells you that modern is not going to compete with type 2 yeah, <laughs> standard. And it's not going to compete with block very much. Right. So it's not going to compete with limited. The most at-risk format is legacy. Right. Legacy is the one where the, we'll see the squeeze. Now... And they're on record as saying part of, quote-unquote, the point of modern is to have a format that doesn't rotate, yet we can reprint everything in it. Exactly. So it's not bound by the reserve list. Right. This is a direct consequence of the reserve list. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is sad, but true. I mean, it's a specter. So what is your prediction? What's your thought? I predicted as soon as we ever heard about it. In fact, I predicted before we even heard about it, (laughs) literally speaking, that there was going to be an all-reprintable format that came up at the beginning of the edge of the reserved list and was going to replace Legacy in terms of support in the long term. And I don't see how you can interpret the current events any way other than that, especially right. especially their dramatic repositioning of Pro Tour Philly this weekend as a right. modern event. I think that there are a couple things to bear in mind. There could not be first, a clearer statement. First, the first and most important question will be how popular is modern? We can envision a couple of scenarios. <laughs> Suppose the two extremes... First, modern is supremely popular, wildly popular. Legacy level popular. Yeah, legacy level popular. The Pro Tour is a huge hit. People start organizing modern tournaments. FNM modern. FNM modern. People clamor for modern. Multiple GPs per year. Imagine it's just the the biggest hit ever, Mm -hmm. right? Over time, the pressure that puts on, let's examine the consequences of that. The pressure that Star City Games will feel, they'll want to run some modern events, you know, and where is that going to come from? It's going to replace their Sunday Legacy events. They'll be like, maybe what they'll do is next year, uh, a couple events will replace Legacy. Every other one, maybe. Every other one, and then it becomes a a vicious cycle. Then it's all all about economics with them. It's pure economics. They get twice as many players on the modern weekends, what do you think is going to happen? Yes. So... That that would lead to the gradual extinction of legacy as we know it. The other possibility, and I'm going to the extreme, is that modern is a huge bomb. Like current extended. Like current extended. That people are really excited about it. It turns out the format isn't that fun. It turns out that it's all big combos. Um, it's not as deep as legacy. That There's something really special about legacy with the duels and stuff like that. And blue. <laughs> and blue. And people want to play legacy. Um, well, in that case, I don't see much harm to Legacy. I suspect that the answer will be somewhere in between. That the... that's This is, again, my suspicion. That mm-hmm. Modern will be popular, mm-hmm. and it will grow over time, mm-hmm. and that they will very carefully manage the format to ensure its popularity, mm-hmm. and that the economics inevitably force Modern to be run over Legacy because the Legacy staples are just too expensive. And Legacy will settle in at some point right. more, slightly more popular than Vintage, but probably significantly less popular than Modern because of the expense issue. I would say that's where it will be in five years. Yeah, that, that is my prediction as well. A prediction that I made to some of my friends before we even knew in the name of Modern that, that Modern was going to take over, Legacy was going to be relegated, relegated, I'm using a kind of derogatory term, but 
left in the long run to uh, exist on its own merits, yeah, <laughs> I guess, is what Vintage I mean, is experiencing. I have no doubt that, that, that Wizards is sincere that it wants to continue to support Legacy. There's no reason and for them specifically to not want a format. very popular. They just want the formats but, that are most popular and best for them to manage. Grow. Right, right. I mean, within reason, it grew some yeah. in the last two years, yes. but it can't it's grow any further. Growth, but it's, it's it has a ceiling. Yeah. It has a ceiling that Modern doesn't have. Right. And... Worth noting, we already know they're reprinting a modern staple in Innistrad in Ghost Quarter. Yes. And that is just a bellwether for how that format's going to be managed. Yes. There's no denying it. So, this weekend, which, uh, anyone who's listening to this, the results of PT Philly are undoubtedly known already. So, we'll have our key first, not our first, one of our first major indicators of the success of the format in terms of not only how that metagame shakes up, but all the feedback about that tournament. All pros will be on record probably with how good the format was. Right. Yeah, um, you know, what's interesting is this is the probably one of the, maybe the second time in the history of Magic, and some someone can correct me on this, where a pro tour is representing a new format. Not a new card pool within a format, mm-hmm. but a new format. A brand new format. How many times has that happened? Well, technically it's happened a handful of times with block type, formats. Type, I just call but, that block. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah I see what you mean, though. It's block. You're right. Standard. If you consider block a monolithic thing. Yes. Yeah. So, very unique. Yeah, that's true. Very You're right. Unique. It's kind of a new event. And I've heard some things about the modern metagame. They yes. are secondhand and not born out of my own testing or anything. The results of this weekend will determine whether or not the things I've heard are good or bad, <laughs> and whether or not people generally like the format. So we'll see. I think that's all we've got on PT Philly. We'll discuss the results in our next episode. Can't wait. Yep. I think we need to just finish with our question of the week then. The question of the week. So, talking about modern, we want to get the feel from our readers, our listeners, what does modern mean for the future of eternal magic? Just that. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? What do you expect? Tweet us. Tell us. Yep. As always, you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It's not gay protective games! <laughs> <laughs>